Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me into a deep dive into the history of Christianity into the early church, the writings of the early church fathers, into the development of the Bible, the formation of the canon and scripture, and up through the Reformation. And I bumped then into the, the Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was. I didn't know a lick of Catholic theology. I had no clue what Catholics believed, and what I thought I knew was based in large part on misinformation and misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week for the last year, for more than a year, for almost 93 episodes, I've sat down with real Catholic thinkers to have real Catholic conversations from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week's episode is a special one. This is a 2020 year in review retrospective. We're going to look back at the episodes that we recorded this past year, 52 episodes in total, and reflect on some of our favorite moments, talk about things that I've learned, really uh, amazing insights that I came to from speaking to these guests, and talk about, reflect on some of my favorite episodes of the year. You know, I wasn't going to do a retrospective like this. I had no plans to do this. I was going to actually release a regular episode this week. It's in the queue, episode 91, with Dr. Mark Gieszczek on the Bible, on how Catholics read scripture. But I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I've enjoyed, actually, this last week, hearing a lot of these 2020 year interview episodes. And I thought, well, you know what? If I enjoyed them, maybe our listeners here at the Court of Catholic will enjoy one as well. And I thought this too, I don't get a chance to chat with you guys after an episode's already aired. There's no chance for me to debrief with you, to give you my thoughts on a conversation that I've had, and so I thought, this is a great chance to reflect on a few of my favorite conversations. I can't fit all of them into one episode, of course, there's 52 of them in total. But to reflect on some of my favorite uh, interactions, some of my favorite things I've listened to, I've learned, and some thoughts I've had on some of the really profound things that have been said in these episodes. So I have a list here of a dozen or so things to, uh, to clips to play for you, to episodes to talk about, and I want to go through a list of episodes here uh, I have in front of me as well, all 52 in total from 2020, and, and talk about the highlights, the, the things that we together learned on this journey. Before I begin, I want to thank the sponsors, the patrons of this show at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Patronage for this show has grown by double, it's exactly doubled in the past year in 2020, and I have you guys to thank for that support. You guys help to make this thing go and make this thing grow week after week. All the money that you give, all the financial support you provide goes right back into helping this show to continue. And I have you guys to thank in a major way. This for me really is an enormous blessing. Who would have thought two, two years almost, almost 100 episodes that's coming up in the future, the 100th episode quite shortly, but who would have thought doing this for so long, uh, this amazing experience that I have to interview these guests, to bring these guests to you, I feel incredibly blessed week after week, and you guys are the ones that I have to thank. So thank you. If you want to help support this show, please go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. All right. Well, let's begin. 
One of the first episodes of the year, of, of 2020, uh, was from January, and it was me talking to Paul McCusker. This was one of those highlights, really, of my podcasting career so far, speaking to Paul McCusker. Paul McCusker is the evangelical voice behind the Adventures in Odyssey series. If you were a kid like me growing up in the 90s, if you were an evangelical kid in the 90s, you would have heard these. These would have been a staple for you, I'm sure, in your evangelical household. These were an audio uh, book series, audio drama, did a bit of television as well, and some and books that also went in that series. And Paul McCusker is one of the guys behind that whole thing for Focus on the Family. Those were hugely popular. And when I understood, when I, when I came to learn that Paul McCusker actually had converted to Catholicism, I saw his episode of The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi, I was dumbfounded. I was floored that somebody so steeped in the evangelical tradition and, and truly uh, one of the, the, the pillars of the evangelical kind of media, uh, kind of imagination <laughs> station from that time period would become Catholic. I, I was amazed. And so I emailed him up. I asked him if he'd come on the show and he was absolutely gracious. I think one of my first two-part episodes was with Paul McCusker. We talked for almost almost three hours in total. It was incredible. It, it was amazing. And uh, we, uh, a wide-ranging talk going all the way back to his journey uh, from, from childhood, his, his faith in this childhood, all the way up until adulthood. His journey into the Anglican Church in search of some kind of foundation and some liturgical tradition and some kind of footing, uh, apart from the evangelical world that he kind of became a little bit um, you know, unsure of and, and turned off of from different kinds of things became Anglican, and as so many Anglicans, of course, we know on, on this show do, made the trip uh, across the Tiber and became Catholic in the end. So we had a fantastic conversation, and his journey is one of the ones that I point back to often when I'm pointing listeners to something to listen to on this podcast, because he really encapsulates the, the importance of, of a foundation in the Catholic Church, and how even wandering around in, in Anglicanism, or, or as an evangelical, he just he, he couldn't find that foundation that he was looking for. Uh, the, the Bible is a foundation, we know as evangelicals, as, as Anglicans as well, but it's, it's not enough in the sense that it wasn't made to be enough. It can't interpret itself, and this is why we see churches fracture and split and all these kinds of things, and he experienced that as well in the Episcopal, in the Anglican church he was a part of. So here's a clip of a, a bit of his experience uh, in the Anglican church on his way into Rome. This is episode 42 from 2020, this past year, uh, Paul McCusker. For good storytelling. Yeah, very much so. So, I've had a handful of Anglican friends whom I've known for a very long time, uh, and they run the gamut, so to speak. You know, some would yeah. describe themselves Anglo-Catholic or High Anglican, yeah. and some are on the very, for lack of a better word, the liberal side of the yes. very large and accommodating faith tradition. Yeah. Uh, as an Anglican, then, um, what made you begin to question this Anglican faith that you had found and began to love so much? Well, see, and this is, it's funny you'd mention that, because I learned the hard way. Uh, about the streams running through Anglicanism, because we lived in England in 1991. We attended Christ Church of Virginia Water, and it was a great experience and helped solidify the direction I was going and my interest in and love of liturgy and where does it all come from. And, and, and to me, Anglicanism was the right middle ground between 
uh, the Reformation and what I understood to be Catholicism. Again, I'm thinking ignorantly because I didn't study Catholicism. I just basically accepted it as it was interpreted through Anglicanism. And so we moved back to uh, Focus on the Family, moved from California to Colorado. And they asked me to come off the freelance thing and come back on staff. And uh, the circumstances allowed that we were okay to make the move back from England to America. We were over there for the year. And at that stage of our lives, we had stuff, but nothing like the amount of boxes that we have now. And so the move wasn't that traumatic. We moved to Colorado. And I began working on staff with Focus on the Family again. And then it was a question of finding a church here. And fortunately, a good friend said, well, I know what you're looking for. And I know that you're afraid that the Episcopal Church is notoriously liberal. But there is a church downtown Colorado Springs, Grace Episcopal Church, that is is conservative. And it's run by a good guy. And it is it is very traditional Anglican. And so we went there and that's where we attended for off and on for 15 years. And the only reason I say off and on is because we actually moved back to England again in 1997. We were there for three years from 97 to 2000. And the reason I say it's interesting is, again, it was much like my Grace Baptist experience where I felt like, oh, this is what all Christians believe, you know, what we believed as Baptists. And then I've come to the rude awakening that that's not true. Well, my experience at Grace Church in Colorado Springs, it was so traditional and so theologically thought out. The teaching there was great that I went, this is Anglicanism. This is what it is. This is the way it looks. This is what it's supposed to feel like. Um, I don't know what else there is, but this is it. And it was kind of Anglo-Catholic, and we studied the works of, uh, you know, Hooker and all the uh, the Anglican theologians. We understood history. We discussed the um, what the Thirty Nine Articles. I mean, we discussed all these things, and I became, I think, pretty well um, attuned to Anglican thinking as I understood it. Well, then we moved back to England in ninety seven. And we go to what I think is a traditional Anglican church. And then I begin to see the change. I see how things are different. So the more traditional one isn't as traditional as the one I knew in Colorado. So then we wind up at another one in the same town because we have friends there. And it's even more evangelical. It's only marginally Anglican. It's more of an evangelical experience. And so I'm beginning to see this, and and I, sorry, it's long-winded, but I was on this church council, a local church council, and a, a directive had come from the Archbishop of Canterbury saying, asking a question about if children are baptism baptized, I mean, when children are baptized, technically they should be able to take communion after they're baptized, but the church was holding off because they said, we want them to understand what it is before they take it. And so they put this question out to all the local parishes. What do you think about this? And I, I'm in this meeting and we're discussing something this significant and weighty that I actually said out loud. I don't understand how we can make this decision. I mean, shouldn't we be going to, Anglican theology 
and exploring how this should play out in terms of what is decided. And the people on the council laughed at me. They laughed. And our vicar actually said, oh, dear boy, I had no idea you were um, such an, uh, an optimist, an idealist. That's what he called me, an idealist, that I dared think that there was something foundational called Anglican theology that could be used in this discussion. That's a little clip from my conversation with Paul McCusker, episode 42. And his journey really is a, is a fascinating and fabulous one. And, and again, I mentioned this earlier in the show, it's really the, the similar kind of journey that many take out of evangelicalism into the Anglican Church, looking for that kind of more solid footing, more historical footing, and, and don't find it there in many cases. Now, many do, of course, but many on this show who eventually become Catholic, that is oftentimes kind of a stopgap or, or, or a waiting room to become Catholic. And time and time again, it is because what they find in those situations is that those churches, as, as, as Paul so, so well put there in that little clip, are just deciding theology for themselves in many cases. They're consulting each other or consulting uh, popular opinion or taking surveys or voting democratically. I, I can think of a number of other guests I've had later on in this year. Uh, I had people like Father James Bradley and uh, James Merrick and Andrew Pettiprin, both those last two uh, former Anglican clerics who in many cases with these with these different guests, actually saw the, the inner workings of the Anglican Church and how uh, theology is and, and doctrine is decided upon in, in votes by democracy. And we're really shocked by that. And that became, for a lot of them, like Paul, a, a catalyst for looking into, well, where's the church that is rooted in foundation, in tradition? I should say, that still refers to that tradition to make their decisions, isn't voting on, on, on new ideas like, like marriage or, or gender or who to ordain or, or what direction to take things in in terms of the, the, the liturgy or, or different ideas like this, but looks to tradition to, to solve those problems. And of course, these different guests I, I'm speaking about, like Paul McCusker, found those things in the Catholic Church, of course, in, a, in, in the magisterium, which allows the church, you know, w which is at its core, the thing that the church believes Christ gave to the apostles, who then became the bishops in succession, and, and to the Pope, to Peter, as the first Pope, and then subsequent Popes after that, uh, ultimately to make those decisions and to say, here's what we believe, rooted in tradition, Here's how we interpret this and understand this versus everyone kind of votes their own way. And there's this kind of democratic way of doing theology. That, for so many people, becomes a problem. And, of course, for me, as a convert as well, became a problem. I want to say again that I can't go through every episode of the year, be here forever, 52 episodes in total, but I do want to hit a number of highlights, and for me the next highlight is episode 44 of the show, uh, way back in January, again the end of January 2020, just before the, the, the pandemic began to, to unravel and unroll across the world, uh, back in the ordinary time. When things felt a little bit different, episode 44 with Douglas Beaumont, Dr. Doug Beaumont, a good friend of the show, been on this show a number of times, one of my very first guests actually on this show, I think the first guest on the show, and back a number of times, and in episode 44 we talked about infant baptism. And this, for me, the big catalyst for this discussion was uh, a YouTuber by the name of Mike Winger, who made and makes a lot of kind of anti-Catholic uh, videos. And, gosh, 
his videos to watch for me as an evangelical convert to Catholicism, who's really read my catechism and, you know, I, I, I left the faith that he's describing to become a Catholic. So, so in, in large measure, you know, the, the things that he's going through and talking about is it as an evangelical, I explored myself and eventually decided to reject those things and, and become Catholic. So, a lot of things he touches on in his videos, I know are outright misunderstandings, and I don't think intentional misrepresentations. I I can't judge what, what Mike knows and doesn't know, but they are certainly misunderstandings. And so one of those misunderstandings was the idea of infant baptism. And Mike had an episode about infant baptism, uh, talking about how Catholics are wrong on this and all the reasons why they're wrong. And I really wanted to just respond to him. I, I remember at the time I dusted off my webcam and I had a whole video set up ready to go. I had a whole script written. I was going to make a video. And I don't do video. I do, I do podcasts. I was going to make a video to respond to some of the claims that Mike was making because I was just so riled up that I really wanted to address some of the things that he was talking about and how, how wrong he was on these issues. Because I knew he was wrong. I, I knew that he was not explaining what Catholics believe accurately and, and not really defending how Catholics would defend this properly. It wasn't a very objective representation of Catholic belief. I was raring to go, and I remembered the words of my good friend John Mark Grodi, who speaks very eloquently about prudence and the, and the, the cardinal virtues. <laughs> He's a great guy. I've had him on the show a few times. A good friend, and, uh, and for me, a good kind of plumb line for how I should live my Christian life, because he is all about the, the virtue of, of prudence and you know, knowing when to speak out, knowing your place and your role and how important that is to the life of the Catholic. And for me, that's a huge thing to hear constantly. <laughs> it is. And so I prayed, I fasted, I practiced prudence and decided that, that I, I shouldn't try to respond to uh, an evangelical apologist like Mike Winger with, with my own response, but I should get an expert on my show to respond. And so I got Dr. Dr. Doug Beaumont on the show to speak about infant baptism, and he was fantastic. You know, his whole thesis boils down to the idea that there are proof texts for both infant baptism and not infant baptism in the Bible. Ultimately, if that's your one frame of reference, the Bible, it, it kind of comes out equally in in the end, in the wash. And so you need some kind of other way of figuring out what you believe apart from just looking at these scriptures because there really is no easy answer to discern between these two kinds, you know, these two options in, in scriptures. It's just, it's just not clear enough. And so great response, great explanation from Dr. Beaumont and other parallels as well. He goes into talking about how, look, look we have no actual cases of, of women receiving communion. In anywhere in the New Testament, right? In the ministry of, of Jesus or the apostles. And so if we're saying that, that we can't baptize infants because there's no evidence of infants being baptized in the New Testament, we also can't give women communion because we have no examples of women receiving communion in the New Testament. So, you know, a really simple parallel like that explains why you can't just look at the Bible and, and, and make these decisions. You have to rely in some measure in on tradition. So here's a little clip from Dr. Beaumont explaining kind of his final thesis on this whole infant baptism uh, uh, issue. Um, so I, I don't really know where to go from there. <laughs> there if, 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 if we show that scripture doesn't prove either side is right, and tradition is one, you know, 98% on the side of infant baptism, then it should win. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic way of, of framing it. And I think that really that approach to, to, to show that this can't be proven in Scripture, so then we have to look elsewhere, and then where do we look? You know, this is my dilemma with the Sunday morning order of service. Well, then we're going to look at it, weigh our traditions, and, and if, if mine <laughs> seems to have, like you say, the overwhelming majority, the, the bulk of church history behind it, well, that, I think... Uh, needs to be consi- considered at least, right? <laughs> sure. And you know, it's funny if when when you can back up a little bit and start to see just how much tradition really does affect your ability to understand Scripture. That that is kind of a mind blower um, for most Baptist types because you, you just don't arrive at Baptist theology without being really immersed in a tradition that you're probably kind of unaware of. Um, but like another another scriptural shocker for me in seminary was one of my professors said, you know, how, how many of you in here believe that God is embodied? You know, in other words, he's walking around with a physical body much like ours. Of course, nobody raises their hand. He says, why don't you? So a couple of the more theologically astute guys raise their hand. Well, it says God is spirit. Spirit hath not flesh and blood. Okay, that's good. So he writes those two verses up there. What else you got? Uh, well, that's about it. Well, then he starts rattling off verse after verse after verse of all these scriptural passages that describe God as having a body. <laughs> you know, he's got eyes, he's got arms, he sits on a throne. I mean, he walks in the garden, on and on and on. He says, you know, why is it that although the, the Bible very clearly describes God as having a body, nobody in here believes that? And that was just such a mind blower for me that like, wow, you know, it just never even occurred to me you know, how physical God sounds in scripture, you know, and we only have like one or two verses that would seem to indicate otherwise. Um, and, and I think that if we can show people that and just say, look, you know, you really are dependent on tradition, whether you think you are or not, um, you know, show them some of those inconsistencies with the method, um, show them things that, you know, really you need to bring with you into scripture to get right. Um, then, then it seems to kind of show that, yeah, you know, the church has a role to play here. You know, th- there needs to be some kind of authority helping people out um, because otherwise it's just accidental that you got it right. And when it comes to infant baptism, again, since we don't have any clear proof texts either way, tradition should win. What a great conversation we had, and what a great paradigm to, to bring up. Uh, Dr. Bowen is fantastic. You know, he was an evangelical uh, seminary professor teaching at a seminary uh, and working with a number of prominent uh, evangelical theologians, too, and brings this fantastic perspective as a convert to, to the Catholic faith and, and how to explain the Catholic faith. Um, his fantastic book, The One Accord, uh, we talked about later on in the year as well. It's a fantastic new book from Catholic Answers Press, which goes through a number of Protestant ideas and Catholic ideas and explains them from the Protestant perspective. So it takes things like prayer to the saints and Eucharist and these things and applies Protestant principles to these things to explain how they make sense in this context. And so I feel like our our conversation on infant baptism was really a foreshadowing of that, because really what what he did in our conversation, and this applies to so many aspects of Catholic and Protestant theology, is he explains why, look, as a Protestant, you believe this. You believe that infants shouldn't be baptized, if you're an evangelical, and just in, in part of this tradition, at least. You believe that infants shouldn't be baptized. But that is a tradition you are bringing to your reading of the scriptures, is what it boils down to, right? And as 
as Beaumont, Dr. Bowen explains, that isn't even on the side of history because traditionally infants have been baptized by, by Catholics, by the early reformers, by Protestants, by most mainline Protestant groups as well. They continue to be baptized. And so if you're weighing these different things, he says, look on the side of tradition, of history, that's got to have some more weight than your more recent interpretation of these scriptures. It's a fantastic conversation and, and, and really fascinating. Number of great episodes following that one, episode 44. I had uh, Bishop Thomas Dowd on the show for the first time, episode 45, talking about the sexual abuse crisis. He's a, a bishop at the time uh, in Montreal here in Canada, now in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, also, um, in Ontario. A bit closer to me, actually, I think, maybe. I don't know. I should look at the map and, <laughs> and find out. Bishop Dowd is a good friend of the show. He's appeared a number of times, uh, actually, tw- you know, once more since the episode. But what a fantastic uh, leader in our church, uh, he is. And our first appearance on my, on my show was talking about the, the abuse crisis and his role in, in helping um, one victim of abuse kind of bring that 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 case uh, before the courts, before law, before the police to help get justice for him. And we talked about the kind of the systemic issues related to the abuse crisis and how we can move forward and how we can trust the leadership of the church is, is doing the right thing and all these kinds of things. It was a great conversation. Uh, of course, I can't show clips from, or can't play clips from all of these shows. It would be here forever, but I'll just gloss over a few that were really amazing. After that, I spoke to Tom and Ellie Zrowski, and I mean, I, <laughs> I couldn't find a clip from there to play if my life depended on it, because that's a, that's a long-ranging two-hour and 20-minute episode. It was three hours originally, our conversation, and I trimmed it down to two hours and 20 minutes. Fantastic conversation with this Protestant pastor and his wife who were missionaries and who really became Catholic out of reading some of these amazing sources and encountering the, the saints, really, in large measure were evangelized that way. And what a fantastic uh, story episode 46 was. Really popular episode too, because I mean, you listen to it and (laughs) you'll see why. Tom is a fantastic storyteller and their journey, their story together is just incredible. You really must hear that episode. And I I couldn't pick a clip because I just can't. It's... (laughs) It's too good to pick one clip from that episode. It, it is phenomenal. The next one I want to highlight, though, is episode 49. And this is uh, a really unique angle I tried to take on, on a discussion. It's between uh, Keith Nestor, a good friend of this show, a good friend to, to myself, and, and his friend, Devin Shaw. And this is a conversation that I called Two Sides of a Catholic Conversion Story, episode 49, recorded around March 4th, uh, or released around March 4th, 2020. And what we did here was we talked about Keith's uh, conversion to Catholicism. Keith, of course, was a Protestant pastor for 22 years in a variety of roles. Uh, Fabulous guy, very evangelical, very well-spoken, very charismatic. Uh, You meet him, you will love to hear and talk to him. He's just a fabulous guy. Pulls you into his orbit and you don't want to get out. He's a wonderful guy. And he met Devin, this other young Catholic guy, and they, they, they hit it off and began a friendship that lasted a number of years in which Keith really uh, discerned Catholicism. And they talked back and forth. Uh, you know, Keith evangelized Devin. Uh, Devin evangelized Keith. They had a lot of these head-butting arguments and discussions and really g- grew together in, in friendship as Keith grew closer to the Catholic Church, eventually become, ended up becoming Catholic. And of course, 
has an incredible YouTube channel now, has a, a brilliant following, a wonderful podcast called Catholic Feedback, uh, wonderful in its own right. He's a good friend of mine and a good friend of this show's. And this episode, uh, episode number 49, did I say 48? It's 49 on March 4th. Just a fantastic two-hour discussion between these two guys, uh, kind of giving both sides of this conversion story. So Keith, from his perspective as an evangelical, looking into the church, and then Devin, from his perspective, uh, evangelizing and, and talking and, and thinking things through with with Keith. So, fabulous conversation. Here's a little clip uh, to, uh, where, where Devin is talking about the first time that he kind of met Keith, and then Keith talks about his first time kind of meeting Devin, and that initial conversation that they began to have uh, around, around the faith, and how it kind of you know, blossomed and grew from there. So episode 49, Keith Nestor and, and Devin Shod. And, um, and that's where I met Keith. And that was kind of a humbling experience because as you know, Keith little, Keith's got some pretty cool hair and, uh, he's, he's a pretty cool guy. You know, he drives the motorcycle. He's got the tats. He's, he's a cool guy. And, uh, so he was just starting up his youth ministry close to around the same time. And, uh, that's about the time we met. <laughs> well, that, that is an incredible story you've already shared with us, Devin. That's really uh, an interesting conversion experience from, uh, this low point in your life playing basketball near a Catholic church to this incredible, uh, miraculous infusion of, uh, of several experiences. And then this incredible thirst and, and, and longing and, uh, desire to just know more about the faith. That's brilliant. And that sounds a lot like the guy that I had heard about when we heard about Keith's story when he first met you. So I wonder, Keith, can we bring you in here? Because uh, <laughs> one of the favorite stories that you tell, and there are a lot in your in your fantastic new book, is how you uh, first met Devin where you were. So could you maybe... Just paint a picture, and I guess I mean we can't we can't sketch out both of your entire life stories. I, I think if if listeners want to hear more about that, they could go back a little bit in, in the archives or or pick up your book because you give a bit more of background. But you you were beginning in youth ministry. You needed a logo. Uh, uh, give us a little bit of that t- taste of that, and and how you got to the front door of this guy who. I think you described as having more statues than, than the Vatican or something. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I had been in youth ministry for a couple of years at that point. I needed a logo because I wanted my youth ministry to look really cool. And so I, I grabbed the yellow pages, called up the first person I saw in the yellow pages. And it was some woman who said, Oh, well, I can't do what you're talking about, but this guy named Devin Shot is a guy you should talk to. So she gave me his number and I called him and, he immediately said, yeah, that sounds like something I could do. And we talked and I'm, I thought this guy sounds pretty cool. Um, so he invited me to come over to his house. He asked me some questions about the youth, youth ministry. And I went over to his house. I remember it was my anniversary that night, probably my first or second anniversary thinking, okay, this guy's artwork is going to be really lame because I'm looking (laughs) at your house and I'm thinking it's going to look like old English or something from like a Renaissance <laughs> fair or a place where LARPers go. And I, you know, so um, I, I pull up to your house and the first thing that, that struck me was what are all these statues for? 
And I'm, I'm thinking as I'm walking up to the to the door, why does this guy have all these statues? I, I, I recognize the one of the Virgin Mary, but the other guy, I didn't know who he was. And I'm thinking <laughs> maybe maybe he lives with his grandmother. You know, maybe maybe, maybe this is his house. Maybe he's a, a neck beard basement dweller. And so I knock on the door and, and this this guy answers the door. And, and um, I instantly felt felt at ease because he was shorter than I was. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, I don't know, man. I think we're pretty close. No. Your hair and, might make you a little taller. I don't know. Well, I walked into Devin's house and, and seriously with, you know, all kidding aside, I was struck by the fact that there wasn't a TV in the living room and that there were statues and there were pictures of, of what I refer to in the book as Catholic looking people. And I, my, you know, I had no exposure to Catholicism at that point in time. I, I hadn't given it much thought. I didn't think anything of it other than, oh, it's it's this crazy, superstitious, you know, non-Jesus, biblical, non-biblical, non-Jesus focused religion. And I, I had no time for it, you know. And so I was thrown off by when I met Devin and I sat down and we started to talk and he showed me the logos that he'd come up with and they were amazing. The first one that I saw, I was like, yeah, that's it. And we start talking and, and Devin, he just had this way about him, the way he spoke to me that night where I was just pulled into his personality and I was drawn to the excitement in his voice when he talked about Jesus and he talked about his faith. And it just made me stop and think to myself, this guy is not like what I think Catholic people are supposed to be like. He, he's way too on fire. So I remember I stopped and I asked him, well, okay, you're a Catholic, right? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, well, what, what, the, what about Jesus? Don't you believe in Jesus? And he's like, yeah. And I, I said, you got to explain that to me because it, it threw me off. <laughs> so what did you say in this first encounter, Devin? Did you, did you, did you plan to d- debate with this Protestant youth pastor before you even met him? I mean, what- <laughs> wonderful conversation between those two. <laughs> A lot of, you know, they've been friends for so long, and so that friendship really shines in their conversation, and, and the, the banter back and forth, and it's just fantastic. And of course, Keith Nestor's hair is mentioned, of course. Uh, great conversation of, of how you can evangelize and, and not have to say a whole lot sometimes. I mean, uh, as Keith explained, a lot of the evangelization in the beginning and over the years is just living uh, in friendship together and, and meeting this person. And knowing he is Catholic and knowing, wait a minute, this guy's Catholic but loves Jesus so much. And and that becomes kind of a weird thing for an evangelical to, uh, of course, encounter. number of great conversations after this one in this fabulous uh, 2020 year interview retrospective. Uh, least of all would be John Bergsma, my first encounter with him, episode 52. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's a fantastic book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and how those... The the finding of those Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the, which which of course were this, the writings from this community uh, near the beginning of, of just before the time of Jesus and kind of contemporary with, with the time of Jesus and his ministry, this group of, of Jews and how they lived and interacted and what that teaches us about Jesus and and the early church and the first apostles and all that all that jazz. His book was fantastic on that, and so I had him on the show to talk about that because what we learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls as we read those as Catholics, and you know, historians tell us this too, fairly objectively, that that community of Jews living around the time of Jesus looked a lot like Catholics then 
did in the in the early church, right? That kind of carried over the, the liturgy, the tradition, some of the things they did and, and and thought about and how they lived and acted and some of the beliefs they had were very much in in the Catholic kind of orbit. Uh, and so we, we can learn a lot about the early church and of course the early church and, and the Catholic bits of the early church from reading and understanding the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so episode 52 with John Bergsma remains one of the most popular episodes that I've done. Uh, he's a fantastic teacher steeped in the Bible, steeped in history. And of course, I will play from him a clip later on because episode 67, he rejoined me on the show to talk about his conversion story. He was, of course, uh, a, a pastor, a Bible teacher, uh, did his PhD um, from Calvin College, of all places, uh, a very evangelical, very reformed kind of uh, leaning, or, or not just leaning, but a very reformed place to do to do a study of the Bible, and of course became um, Catholic. And this amazing story, episode 67, his conversion story, it was a, a fabulous one, but this was episode 52, kind of before that, when I first met him, talk about um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, great episode back in the archives for you to check out. I encourage you to listen to that episode, very popular one. But after that was episode 53 with uh, Jimmy Aiken. And of course, I can't go through every single episode that I've done. It would take forever, I keep saying that. I should stop saying that, probably. But this one was a fantastic one, because this was, this was April. This was April, let me see, April, oh, April 1st. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a joke episode, I promise you. April 1st, this was really at the height of kind of the first wave of the pandemic in uh, in North America, in I mean, where we were in Canada, uh, where I am in Canada. This was during our, our, our first kind of lockdown. Things were very uncertain. Things were very confusing. Things, I mean, only got worse in a sense. And as I record this, the tail end of 2020, things are, are, are again, I mean, vaccines are coming out. Uh, but their numbers are, you know, going up, of course, everywhere, um, in large part. Where we are here in Ontario, we're back into a full lockdown, our second kind of lockdown, as, second, as the second wave kind of peaks here where we are. And it's tragic, and it's difficult, and it's complicated, especially as Catholics, as believers, to understand why these things would be happening in some cases. So... I've fielded and fielded a lot of questions from atheists, from non-believers, from non-theists about, about God and evil. And so I have had Jimmy on the show a number of times uh, in the past. He's, I, I think, a friend of the show at this point. And so I had him back here to talk about the problem of evil because he has a, um, a great talk on this, a number of articles. He's done a lot of deep thinking in this area. And so I had him on the show to unpack the problem of evil evil, making sense of evil and suffering, episode 53, I called it. And so here's a clip of him responding to one of the big things that I, one of the, one of the big questions or concerns that I get uh, in, in the form of email and uh, you know on Twitter and Facebook from, from atheists, from agnostics, from non-believers about the problem of suffering. And, and the question is really, you know, why couldn't God make a world where there wasn't any suffering? And Jimmy, Jimmy's response is fantastic. It's, it's thorough. It's a really great and, and measured and reasonable response to this question. And so and here's what he said. Of course, with uh, the, the problem of suffering and evil, is it limiting in God's omnipotence and God's omniscience and God's, this idea of who God is, to say that, well, maybe he could have made a world with free will, but without evil. And he didn't do that, so he's somehow limited in his abilities. Does that make any sense? Well, so he couldn't make a world that had free will 
of the type we're talking about that didn't allow for moral evil. Um, uh, the type of moral freedom we're talking about is the freedom to choose either love, which is good, or non-love, which is evil. And, and you can't allow that kind of freedom without allowing moral evil to exist. So it, it would, again, be just word salad. It would be like four-sided triangle to say that God creates a world that allows for free will but not evil in any form. The question would then be, what about physical evil? Could he make a world that allows for moral evil but not physical evil? And this is an area where I think I, I think there personally I need to think more about it. What I have meditated on in the past about this is that there there seems to be a connection between moral evil and physical evil. Um, where if I uh, if I choose moral evil that seems to imply some kind of physical evil as a result of the moral evil. Because if I'm not choosing, if I choose to be cruel to someone, that person is going to suffer as a result. On my end, there's moral evil. On their end, there's physical evil. And, uh, and consequently, um, there is a logical connection between the two forms of evil. There may be physical evil without moral evil, like in the case of a virus. The virus isn't doing anything morally evil. It's just trying to reproduce. Um, but in the case of, there does seem to be a connection between moral evil performed by a rational agent and physical evil that is its consequence. Now, you could say, well, okay, could God let me choose to do a morally evil act? Could I choose to be cruel to someone? And then he could intervene to stop that person suffering. Well, uh, it it looks to me, based on the present state of my thought, that uh, yeah, he probably could. God could let us make morally evil choices, but then do something that, that prevents the physical evil that that would imply from happening. Um, and it would be an interesting world where every bad thought you had and every evil choice you made was suddenly stifled in its consequences. But here, I think we'd be back to the fundamental principle that we discussed earlier of if God allows that person to suffer innocently because of what I did, because of my choice to be cruel, God will more than make it up to that person. And so it's still fundamentally... Uh, the case that God is giving that person a good deal. That All right, so fantastic response from Jimmy Aiken. And it really comes down to his premise, which he explains earlier in the episode, which maybe I should have included that as a clip as well, but the idea that if something bad happens to you, you know, God has a plan to more than pay you back for that thing. Right, that is ultimately the the economy that that he kind of lays out for us there, and so that's a fantastic and really interesting response to think about a world uh, in which there was maybe no no evil, no consequences, how that would look, and 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 how we understand it and work through that. Around that same time, with that discussion with with Jimmy Aiken, I spoke also to uh, Don Eating Goldstein. Uh, about redemptive suffering. This was, again, mid-April, kind of middle of the, the, the first major wave of the uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, at least here in North America. And 
I was thinking again of, of how to address, how to answer some of these pressing questions we were having about suffering and evil and that kind of thing. And that's one of my, uh, still remains one of my favorite interviews with Dr. Uh, uh, Don Eden Goldstein, because she introduced me in large measure to this this concept, this concept from Aquinas and from from the church, from the, the, the tradition of the church, the theological and philosophical tradition of the church, this idea that we can that we can join our suffering with Christ and suffer for others. So when we think about how to to act as Catholics during this this pandemic, uh, in our own lives when we suffer even just mundane kinds of evils or or struggles or problems. Dawn gives the story of her having uh, having some kind of surgery. And giving up the suffering, uh, her pain, uh, giving that up to help somebody else, right? The idea that we we join our suffering with Christ in order to 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 do good with that suffering. It was a, a fantastic, really phenomenal, and uniquely Catholic kind of concept uh, that answers some of the problems with with suffering and evil that we uh, that that non non Catholic Christians, Protestant evangelical Christians, uh, wrestle with these questions of of what good comes from evil. Well, here's a, a fantastic Catholic answer to that question, this idea of redemptive suffering, of redeeming our suffering, of, of giving our suffering for a purpose that, that can help us to grow spiritually and help others as well to grow spiritually and, and to find Christ in all of that. A fantastic conversation with uh, Don Eden Goldstein, episode 55 from, from April 15th. Then we skip ahead a whole bunch. I had a number of wonderful guests on in the meantime. Talked to Steve Ray, I think, for the second time, uh, April 29th, 2020. Episode 57 on unpacking the papacy, uh, joined by Steve Ray for a great conversation on, on that topic. And episode 58 from May 6th, uh, 2020 of this, this past year was, for me, a really important one. And this was um, with Nick uh, Jaboni and Vera Marie Calandria. Now, these two are, are, are phenomenal people <laughs> in their own rights. Nick is the, uh, I think it's titled CEO or Executive Director of the Padre Pio Center uh, in North America, um, the, the major hub for all things Padre Pio in, in uh, North America. And uh, Vera is one of the recipients of a miracle. From Padre Pio, this, miracle, this amazing miracle she tells in this episode, fifty-eight of kind of the, the, the healing she, her mother really received for, for on her behalf, you know, and it's this amazing story of literally how she she regrew or grew these these major organs as as an infant as a baby that she really credits to the intercession of Padre Pio. And as a result, this center in North America was that was founded based on the miracle that she experienced, that her mother was, was given through the intercession of, at that time, a, a living, a living saint, Padre Pio, whose mother went over and, and saw, literally, in person, and, and spoke to and was touched, and this healing took place. It's, it's an amazing story, that story and uh, and and Nick and Vera joined me in the episode to to share that that story, but I think what's what's remarkable for me from my perspective, from my part in this whole this whole narrative and and my relationship with Padre Pio, this amazing saint, 
who I guess for, for non-Catholic listeners, if this is your first episode of the podcast, not the best one to listen to uh, if you need some more backstory, because, <laughs> because I'm assuming a lot of things here in these discussions as I bring them forward and we recap the year and think of what how it's been. I guess the saints are one of those things, and and I, I, we do go into some depth in episode fifty eight with uh, with Nick and Vera, talking about prayer to the saints in particular to Padre Pio. But one of the stories I tell in that episode, which really was the catalyst for me having both of those those people on the show, and really uh, under underpins and, and plays an important role in this podcast, is a miracle that took place for, for me at the hands of of Padre Pio of this now deceased saint who has been canonized by the church to say, yes, he's a holy man, he is he is worth venerating, worth praying to, worth, worth I guess the parlance here is important, worth asking to pray for us is what we are doing as Catholics. So in the same way that I ask you, my, my living brother or sister in Christ, to pray for me, we, we as Catholics ask the saints to, to pray for us because we believe that the veil has been torn and and. And there's no more separation between the living and the dead people who are part of the, the church. We're all one body of Christ, and so those deceased Christians can still pray for us in some miraculous way. And those prayers are heard by by Christ, by 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 God. So the catalyst for this was that I this was a, a while back, and this is I guess fitting for a, a 2020 year in review retrospective episode. I was I had a low point. Uh, you know, doing the podcast uh, earlier on, uh, definitely in year one of the, in 2019 of the podcast, I'd done maybe a dozen or so episodes, uh, maybe up to 20 or so episodes, and I was feeling discouraged because the podcast wasn't growing as well as I had hoped it would be growing, and I really was spending a lot of time, and I still am, an effort into the, the, the podcast, into getting guests and editing and recording, and it was all so new for me, and it was a steep, steep learning curve, and I was still doing a lot of blogging on the side as well, and, and had a young family and a full-time job that wasn't the podcast, wasn't writing, and so I was uh, feeling discouraged at that point. And I remember just at the kitchen sink doing doing dishes one evening before I had an interview later that night, just praying and asking Padre Pio to pray for me. I said something along the lines of, uh, you know, Padre Pio, please pray for me. Pray, pray that 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 Christ would send me some kind of sign to know that I should continue podcasting. You know, if I'm wasting my time, in other words, you know, help me to quit because I don't want to be wasting my time doing this if this thing, this podcasting thing is pointless and and there's no sense in carrying on. You know, give me a sign to know that I should continue in this direction or I should just quit. I need some I need some guidance here. I was at a low point in the podcast, just feeling like it wasn't it wasn't worth it anymore. I was I was sinking time into it that wasn't coming back, that wasn't being that wasn't being useful for the kingdom, wasn't useful for Christ. And I could do other things with my time uh, instead of the podcast. And so what happened was, I mean, that evening, I think within an hour probably or so, I get an email on my phone and it's from this guy called Nick Gaboni and he's talking about how much he loves the podcast and it's been a huge blessing for him and helped him and been really useful and very encouraging email and then he signs the email and that's what that's what just floored me the email came from Nick Gaboni CEO of the Padre Pio uh, National Padre Pio Center um, such and such 
And I remember this this feeling <laughs> that I felt when I read that email was just this elated sense of, of, of weightlessness, <laughs> in a sense. Because here I had prayed to ask Padre Pio to please send a sign, help me to know that this is the right direction to go, you know, help me to know that I'm doing the right thing here. And here was the CEO of Padre Pio's North American Center emailing me to say, hey, great podcast. I love it. Keep going. So if ever I, I, I need some encouragement, if I ever I need to, to know personally uh, that, that prayer to the saints is effective, that they're listening, that they're praying for us, and that this podcast is a thing that I should be doing right now uh, in 2020 in spite of all of these things that are going on, if ever I'm, I'm unsure or unclear, well, I just think back to this, <laughs> this remarkable incident with with this uh, a saint sending his CEO to let me know that that yes I'm on the right track. I mean, <laughs> wow, that was incredible. So, a number of episodes uh, going going down or up the list here in 2020 in our in a year in review retrospective, but they were just phenomenal episodes. I mean, I love all of these interviews, of course, and and but some stand out for certain particular little instances or little little things that that took place. And episode 60 with Sonia Corbett, uh, the Bible study evangelista, as she's known uh, on social media, definitely stands out for me for a number of number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I guess is the fact that her story is so interesting. Here was a here was a Southern Baptist steeped in the Bible, steeped in her church, steeped in this this sola scriptura kind of mentality who after seeing a number of of church splits and number of issues that I myself faced, right? On issues like how can we know which interpretation of the Bible is the right interpretation? How can we know who's right on this? How can we know we're following Christ if, if this group here is doing this and this group here is doing this? And there's no real unity, but we're all saying that there is, and we're all saying that we're Christians. How do we know who's who's right, who, who's got the market cornered on on these different ideas or interpretations? And she, she faced that kind of head-on in her experience as working in ministry, working in leadership, a number of churches that kind of split and fractured. And she came to the Catholic Church really, really kicking and screaming, <laughs> in a real sense, but it was her story about her husband that, that really sticks with me. It's near the end of the episode, number 60, from May 20th, 2020, where she talks about her husband, and she just unabashedly says, yeah, he was on the toilet when he kind of received this vision of, of being of being St. Joseph, having to follow Mary uh, in, in obedience to, to, to God, and in this, in this mission that they had as this couple, and and that was really how he came to Christ, uh, sorry, he came to the Catholic Church, I should say, and, and left evangelical uh, Christianity. Basically a revelation on the toilet, <laughs> is how she describes it. And I love that idea. I love the idea of God working in, in mysterious ways, in remarkable ways, in hilarious ways. And uh, I don't know to this day that, that he knows that she shared that tidbit or if it's public knowledge or not. Afterwards, when we were talking... When the interview kind of wrapped up, she had said, wow, I said a lot of things that I don't normally say on, on podcast interviews. And maybe that's one of those things that she didn't mean to say or didn't, <laughs> doesn't often say. But it was a great story. And her episode number 60 from May 20th, 2020 is just fantastic. It's a really, really remarkable story. And I oft, often recommend this episode to, to listeners to get a sense of, of a real good story of 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 conversion from somebody who was really steeped in 
in the Bible, in their church, in their denomination that really hit against those walls, those walls that, that I talk about a lot in this podcast, that, that in my own journey I hit against, which is how do we know that what we're reading in the Bible, how we're interpreting it, how do we know that that is the, the right interpretation? When so many other groups have different ways of interpreting these things, come to different conclusions, yet we're all part of the same body of Christ, but we can't agree on on fundamental things like salvation or, or, or baptism or, or the Eucharist or, or these kinds of things. Never mind the more tangential kind of ideas like sexuality or marriage or, or gender that are in the forefront, at least in popular culture these days, and, and definitely a live issue in a lot of church circles. Never mind those things, which we also can't agree on. Look at the fundamentals, because even in the fundamentals, which we can't paper over, we still disagree on those major things like salvation, right? Like how we are actually saved. Does baptism save? Because these groups down here believe that, and other, but no, other groups say, no, it, it doesn't save. It doesn't do anything other than a symbol. You know, how do we reconcile those two views? Well, we can't, right? We can't apart from some kind of arbiter that has the ability to say, you know what? This is what the church teaches, what we've always taught, and Christ gave us the authority to be able to say this is how it is, right? And so many of us, many of us converts find the Catholic Church by those kinds of means. And episode 60 with Sonia is a fantastic, uh, you know, story, I should say, uh, of, of that kind of a journey. Looking down my list, I mean, 2020, one of the advantages, I guess, one of the the the, the, the pros in the pros and cons column for me in, in 2020 is just the fact that people were stuck at home. They were, they were at home. They were in lockdown in many cases. And so a lot of these interviews that I was able to do were, were made so much easier by the fact that everyone was just home and, and, and sitting around and didn't have a lot to do in many cases. And so grateful, I mean, silver lining for, for that opportunity, those opportunities to interview people like Sonia, like a number of these guests that I had who who had their plans canceled. And so they were at home ready to answer Skype, answer the phone, and chat about some of these really interesting uh, subjects that I hope you guys enjoyed hearing over the course of the last year in, uh, in 2020. Episode 61 was, again, His Excellency Bishop Thomas Dowd, a, a good friend of the show, rejoined me talk about apostolic succession and, and why it matters. We kind of unpacked the idea of the apostles as or as the as bishops, sorry, we unpacked the idea of bishops as the successors of the apostles and why that's so important. Again, this this circles back to the idea of church unity, of that teaching authority, the magisterium, the ability that Christ gave his church to kind of bind and loose, right? To to teach what things meant and how to understand those. And, and that, again, is a really important subject and a, a great unpacking of that from what I think is amazing, an actual successor of the apostles, unpacking apostolic succession. So definitely skin in the game for him. Other memorable interviews going down the line, episode 62 with Gary Machuda, just a fantastic episode talking about where the Bible uh, comes from, how it was formed. I called the episode Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. It remains a very popular episode as well because it's it's one of those questions that we get all the time as Catholics. Why is your Bible bigger? And something that I, in in my own journey uh, into Catholicism as an evangelical, that was one of the big issues, right? I say it every show. I say the, the, the issue of, of Scripture versus tradition. That That is, you know... Uh, 
one of the building blocks for me of, of the, my conversion, that Protestant pastor that asked me that question. And so this, this question, tackling this question, the formation of the canon was, was very important to me to, to unpack. And Gary helped me through his books to do that. And it came on the show in episode 62 to do that for, for me and, and the audience. And an hour and 34 minute episode that I don't think legs at all. I think it's very exciting the whole way through. A great episode. Fantastic conversation with Gary Machuda. He has some, some phenomenal insights into, uh, into um, problems with the Bible, into why the Bible is the way that it is, how it was put together. Just an absolute genius on, on the Bible. It's a really deep dive into why Catholic Bibles are bigger. Episode 67, let's skip ahead a, a few here. On, on July 8th, 2020, an hour and 30 minute chat with Dr. John Bergsma. So Adam, I mentioned before on the Dead Sea Scrolls earlier in the uh, in the year. Here again, episode 67, I called it an evangelical Bible scholar becomes Catholic with Dr. John Bergsma. Episode 67 from July 8th, 2020. He just tells his story. He tells his story, his conversion story, and it's a it's a fabulous one. He is such a well-spoken Honestly, I think everyone I talk to who knows uh, who knows Dr. Bergsma says the same thing. He's the nicest guy in the absolute world. You'll never find a nicer guy ever, I don't think. He just has this charisma about him, this kindness, this patience, this this charity, this generosity that really just just, just flows from him in spades. You know, you know, just talking to him, he is this the kindest guy. And he tells here his conversion story, which is really interesting, you know, right? He was a Protestant pastor, he was a biblical scholar, he was steeped in the Reformed tradition, and yet came to the, the, the Catholic Church through meeting some different people, through doing some reading, and I, one of his classic lines that, that I often talk about in subsequent interviews, because it really informs my way of thinking, is, is really he, he hid into one early church father, I think it was Ignatius, uh, one of his letters. So, you know, one of the, the one of the very first successors of the apostles in the early Christian church, writing contemporary to some of the books of scripture we have, very much contemporary to some of those books of scripture, are these early church fathers who unpacked some other ideas. Of course, not canonical, not part of the Bible, but people who lived in the same time or, or shortly thereafter, taught by the apostles giving us a glimpse into what the very first Christians looked like after the apostles had passed away and the, and the church continued, right? And Dr. Bergsma hit against one of these church fathers, again, I think it was Ignatius, who says simply something along the lines of where the bishop is, where the Eucharist is, that's where the church is. And so many of us converts who read the early church fathers read read quotations like this, like these things that sound so foreign to our evangelical ears. Like, what is a, what is a bishop? We don't have that. What is the Eucharist? We don't have that. The church is everywhere, right? The church is invisible and the body of Christ, and we're all, we're all part of it. Well, as I mentioned just moments ago, right? Okay, if that's true, how come we can't get along? Why aren't we united? Why can't we agree on these fundamental things? And how can we call ourselves all the same church if there's no agreement on how, on what that church looks like or should act like or or believes, right? That's a real struggle. And here's Dr. Berkma finding these early church fathers who wrote about this actual, a visible, tangible church had these boundaries, right? And the boundary was, well, 
where's the bishop? Where's the guy who is the successor of the apostles, appointed by them, laid hands on by them, in continuity? Where's that guy? And where's the Eucharist celebrated by that guy? Where is that happening? Because that's where the church is. Not this invisible, ethereal group of Christians meeting in secret in different locations. The church is unified around these bishops and around the celebration of the Eucharist, which, which they believed and other church fathers write quite eloquently, but this is the body, blood, soul, divinity of Christ. This is, as we believe now as Catholics, the early church was, was working this out quite in, in quite good detail, quite closely to how we still believe it today as Catholics. Where is that, right? So, just an amazing discovery by Dr. Bergsma that he says in this episode, 67, really, you know, once he hit that, he had to be Catholic. Because you realize so quickly that, well, this sounds Catholic. I don't have any of these things. And if this was true back back then, it's still true now. The bishop is still where the church is. The Eucharist is still where the church is. This didn't stop being true, apart from, as my friend Rod Bennett likes to say, some kind of wild conspiracy theory, right? And then you're in kind of, in the conspiracy theory territory, which becomes a bit dangerous, or a lot dangerous, right? Or you get to say, well, I can't know, therefore, than what is true at all about the church. So here's a clip, though, of, of Dr. Bergsma, episode 67, talking about Matthew 18, which for me was, again, one of those huge sticking points. Again, about the visible, tangible church, right? Here's how Dr. Bergsma kind of unpacks this. <laughs> well, I mean, John 17 is a huge verse for me, too. And I wonder how you dealt with Matthew 18, which talks about, because this was a huge, I remember bringing this verse to my evangelical pastor when I was kind of on the cusp of becoming Catholic. I said, look, right here, Jesus talks about how to deal with kind of disputes in the church. And he says, you know, bring bring along a witness, bring along two witnesses. And if they won't believe you, listen to you, hear you out, bring, bring it to the church. And then, the, you know, the church can kind of deal with that. And I said, well, what church? Because if I have a, if we disagree on a theological point or have a disagreement of any kind, you know, and in my local church or even my denomination, if we disagree, I can go to, I can go to a different church or a different denomination. What do I do with this? Like, I mean, that was, that was a huge, and I got no satisfactory answer from anybody that asked this question to, uh, right. in my evangelical circles. Did, did. How did how did you square with the verse like that when you were uh, in that place? It was a problem for me too because we had church discipline issues. Keith, I was a pastor, and we had people that were cohabiting openly and, and uh, committing other kinds of like uh, you know flagrant uh, publicly known sins, and yet continuing to come to church and claim to be. Uh, you know, a Christian and a, a church member. And so we had some church discipline places where we had to excommunicate uh, people. And what they did is exactly what you described. They just went a couple blocks down and they went to a different church that didn't think that X, Y, and Z was a sin or something like that. And so I, I, was you know our my my little church we tried to consistently apply that uh, passage from Matthew 18 about going to the to the sinful brother and rebuking and then bringing in another along and and so on and we followed that all the way through to the point of telling them that uh, you know they could not receive communion at our church and um, uh, had to repent to be restored to membership in our little uh, community. And, and then, like I said, you know, they go to some other church. And so I looked at that passage, I thought about this, and, and it occurred to me, Keith, that 
our divisions between different Protestant denominations were, was defeating was defeating the application of Matthew 18, that, that this no longer worked hmm. uh, because of the disunity of the church. And I had no solution for it, but I just had this tremendous nostalgia for the early church, which I imagined as a uh, place of, of, you know, of unity, a, a unified body, um, around the early leadership of, um, you know, the, the pastors and those that we later called the church fathers and so on. But I felt like it was an unrecoverable ideal. Like I could never get back to that early church. I could never find where that unity uh, existed. Um, yeah, again, that primed me, but I, I didn't know where to go to resolve that at the time. <laughs> Yeah, great, great conversation with Dr. Bergsma. Uh, great episode. I recommend that highly. Episode sixty-seven. Listen to the whole thing, because it's a great conversation from a really earnest and honest and devout evangelical uh, pastor, biblical scholar, who just wrestled through these issues really in real time. In our episode, he goes through it uh, of what brought him to the Catholic faith and, and how he sees no other real alternative there. Uh, speaking of Converse of the Faith, episode 69 was with Andrew Pettiprin, a former Episcopal priest who became Catholic. He's working at the Word on Fire Institute. Fantastic guy, uh, become a, a real friend of mine. We interact a lot on Twitter. And uh, just a great guy with a great story to tell, right? He was an Episcopalian priest who, who really was looking for that unity, looking for that kind of... Uh, the teaching authority and found it in the Catholic faith. And uh, it's a great episode. 67 also, of course, had a number of other converts from, from similar, uh, I wouldn't say trains of thought, but a similar direction. Dr. James Merrick in episode 81 joined me. He was an Anglican um, academic and priest, again, who found the Catholic Church. I have an uh, episode with uh, Father James Bradley, episode 63, who really tells his story of the Anglican road to the Catholic Church. Great British accent in episode two, very popular for the accent alone, which we North Americans just love to eat up. Absolutely love. Um, great episode, sixty. Sorry, 71 on August 5th, um, an a two-hour episode with Dr. Lawrence Feingold. I had Dr. Feingold on the show back in episode 14, uh, back in 2019. Really an ancient episode. It's hilarious to listen back to it now because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do interviews or how to how to articulate or, or ask decent questions and really was surprised by some of his answers. I really was unprepared to, to ask follow-ups because some of his answers just kind of shocked me. But uh, fabulous interview in, in episode 14 back in 2019. But had him on again. He was happy to return to the show for a two-hour, uh, really good, deep-dive kind of talk around the issue of the Eucharist. I called it What You Need to Know About the Eucharist, um, episode 71 from August 5th, 2020. We really, I mean, his his fantastic book on the Eucharist is just a massive, I think, eight hundred page tome. Uh, I read it. I I ate it up in a few days because it was it was is that a pun? I didn't mean it. I devoured it. <laughs> I can't stop. I can't stop the puns. I read the whole thing in a couple of days because it's just a fabulous book. It's so well written. It goes through really the Eucharist from all angles, like historically in the early church, in the church fathers, how it was seen at, at Trent, at the Reformation, uh, how it was understood by the early reformers and by, by Protestants. And, and then, I mean, 
in, into things like what does it what does it mean what how how does how does God intend it where does it come from in Scripture what are the what are the roots of this idea I mean every conceivable angle that you can think of on the Eucharist uh, Dr Feingold unpacks in his fabulous book I can't recommend it enough I really can't I, I've bought it for a few friends subsequently because it's just such a good book to get your hands on to, to really unpack and understand what the Eucharist is all about and. Just a great conversation. We, we really chatted for a long time about um, the Eucharist, but the clip I want to share with you um, comes from the discussion of, of the biblical perspective on the Eucharist. So what does the Bible actually say about the Eucharist? We're talking a bit about John 6, about the idea of you know Christ telling us we must, must eat his body and then doubling down thing we must gnaw his body and really just just going going really in depth to, to to make sure that his followers knew that he really meant this and then tying that into what, what the lord's supper into into the last supper that he instituted as a real as a real model of of this jewish passover and this really this model of this ritual meal we were meant to to continue of course as an evangelical uh, protestant that wasn't how at all how i understood communion to be right uh, we evangelicals understood that to be a symbolic thing we do, we do kind of once a month it was just done in memory of of jesus right as he says but not in the literal sense that he that he i think as a, as a catholic and i think you know dr feingold would agree with this as christ clearly says quite literally in John 6. And then even as Paul says, as Paul explains the, the Last Supper, Paul Paul is very literal in saying, you know, this is this is Christ's flesh, so on and so forth. You know, we use those words, those same words at, at Mass when we're when, during Eucharistic prayers and, and during the, 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 the liturgy of the Eucharist. We say those, the, the priest says those things and means them quite literally. So, Here's Dr. Feingold kind of unpacking some of the biblical uh, ideas of where the Eucharist comes from in, in Scripture um, itself. mentioned as an evangelical that I, I truly, we didn't have this in our, in our lexicon, maybe, in our imagination, that our communion could have been prefigured or explained, or there was any kind of link to the Old Testament, but... Even I'm thinking of now in the New Testament. I mean, you spend a lot of time in your book on the Eucharist in the New Testament, and it really it shouldn't be surprising that if Jesus came to establish this thing called the Eucharist as kind of a formula for how the church should worship and this thing he is giving to us, well, then it should be in the New Testament. And this, to me, is one of the most remarkable things that I discovered, I think, when I began reading about Catholicism, is that in the New Testament— I mean, we're just littered with references to the Eucharist, and at some points, it really couldn't be more clear. I mean, you talk about John 6 just now, where Jesus says we must eat his flesh, and I don't know how, as an evangelical Christian, I really ever could have read that and came to any reasonable conclusion about what Jesus could have meant. But I mean, that's just one example out of the New Testament. I wonder, because, I mean, I guess I, guess I couldn't... I don't fault my my past self and my my evangelical kind of kind of past for disregarding or not understanding the Old Testament kind of typology and prefiguring of this thing called the Eucharist. But goodness gracious, I don't know how I missed this in the New Testament. <laughs> so can you kind of unpack for us how the Eucharist is is laid out and discussed in in the New Testament? Okay, yeah. So it, I mean, I can see how somebody might complain. All right, it's it's not present on every page. That's true, but um, Jesus, so the key texts are 
straightforward, right? It's, it's not, they're not any texts that Protestants don't know. John 6, and then the four parallel accounts of the institution narrative, and that is the three synoptic gospels plus 1 Corinthians 11, right? So those are the most fundamental texts, and they, and they have this relationship that John 6 is, occurs a year earlier, and so in, in John 6, the Bread of Life Discourse, he, Jesus lays it out, but lays it out in a very mysterious way. He doesn't fully explain himself. In other words, he says it very, he shocks his readers. Right? There's no, he shocks them in, in, in a crescendo of shock. Um, and so that John 6 is just an absolute masterpiece. And it's one of those texts that has to be read and reread and reread to see the, the steps, right? So what's really interesting, he starts with the manna. In other words, he's, well, he starts with the day before, the multiplication of loaves, right? So he, and this is typical of the New Testament, that Jesus's miracles and his sacramental teaching are interwoven. So when we see his miracles, we ought to suspect that they have a, a sacramental meaning and implication because Jesus only cured some, Right? But his purpose is to save all mankind, to offer himself. And so those miracles, say, of feeding some people on a particular day, that can't have as its final purpose just that feeding. Right? It has a deeper purpose to explain about something it's going to do for our souls and not just for our bodies. Right? So the, the multiplication law starts out. Then the next day, right, the crowds are following, and Jesus reproves them because they're there for a free lunch. They're expecting him to do it again. And there's a whole backstory to this, and which is interesting, but we can't really go into it. But just let me say really briefly, the Jews were expecting a new Moses. And Moses fed them with a man in the desert. And so they were expecting the Messiah to give free lunch, not just once, but daily, as it were. All right, so that's the next day. All right, so what does Jesus say? Seek not the bread that perishes, but the bread that endures for eternal life. So he right there at the beginning of the discourse makes the transition between two kinds of nourishment, physical and spiritual nourishment. All right, so that's kind of the start. But then the center of the thing, so that might not be shocking in itself. It would just be uncomprehended. But what gets shocking is when he links, so what? how is he going to nourish us spiritually? Well, he says he's the bread of life, so it's got to be him. So that's what's clear first. He's the one who has to nourish us. Nothing else can nourish us properly. Right? The bread of life has to do it. But how is he going to do it? All right, the shocker, his flesh and his blood. All right, the flesh was bad enough, and the blood is just, because um, that's for God, right? And so, but that is incredibly meaningful. If the, the blood in Israel is always for God, because that's the sign of the life, giving us the, so it's a reversal. Animal blood is for God. Here Jesus is saying that his divine human blood is for human beings. And so it turns everything upside down. But the meaning is obvious. If you look for it, it has to do with what we spoke about before, divinization. He wants to give us his flesh and his blood to divinize us, which is just means to nourish us with his divine life. That's what he means by speaking of himself as the bread of life, bread of divine life that's become man so that there can be a contact, right? So that, that we can encounter him in a human way. All right, but what he didn't explain there and he left his readers shocked, is how he was going to do it in a way that wouldn't seem like cannibalism. And so he was happy to let most of his readers, I don't mean happy, he was willing to let most of his listeners leave. 
right? This is a hard saying. Retreating in nothing about those hard words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And all right, the, the apostles, you two want to leave? Peter, no, I don't understand what you're talking about. All right, he didn't directly say that, but in effect, you've got the words of eternal life. You know what you're talking about. But Jesus leaves in there because he wants that aspect of faith to trust in the divine master and the full measure of his words, even though I can't put it together myself. He left them all suspended for a year. And it wasn't until a year later, the following Passover, that he shed light on how this was going to happen. Again, totally without preparation, at the Last Supper, when he, they were expecting him to do... All right, so at the Last Supper, Jesus is acting as the head of the household with his 12 apostles, right? The head of the household does certain things in a Passover meeting. At the beginning, he takes bread, the matzah, the unleavened bread, and divides it up and passes it out. And there's a, a prayer that's said. All right, what does Jesus do? He adds something unheard of. This is my body. Right, and so here now he explains how it was that a year earlier, he said, unless you eat my flesh, you will have no life in you. Right? So that flesh is given to us under a form, under the appearances, that is fitting for humans to eat. Right? And after the supper, he does the same with the wine. Right? Saying that that is his blood. And so that explained how he was going to feed us with his body and blood, but in a way that would be fitting to what human beings eat and drink. Great conversation with Dr. Lawrence Feingold. Episode 71, uh, back August uh, 5th, 2020. Really fascinating. A, a, a deep dive. That's just a small taste of the depth we went to in that episode on the Eucharist. Next on the list, I, I spoke to in episode 73, this was a really unique one, and the subject of lots of prayers and continuing prayers, and I thank you guys for your support. I had a number of, of emails, some great feedback from this episode with John Steingard, episode 73. I called it Deconstructing Evangel Evangelical Christianity with, with John Steingard. Um, John is the was the lead singer of the Evangelical Christian um, rock group Hawk Nelson. I didn't really listen to them very much. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I admit that to John in the interview. I wasn't uh, necessarily a fan of their music. I knew them kind of tangentially. But uh, he very publicly came out, uh, one of the, one of the several people in, in 2020, to come out um, as uh, no longer believing in uh, in Christianity, no longer being a Christian, at least according to the faith that they, they had once practiced. And one of these really prominent kind of deconversion stories uh, that that have, have have kind of peppered the press in 2020 uh, and even before then. I mean, this is nothing new, really. And uh, so I reached out to him because we have very very similar backgrounds. He he is Canadian. He was Pentecostal. He we we were almost in some of the very similar circles because I had friends who were also who also played in bands, and uh, they would play in similar similar shows, similar venues as Hawk Nelson, and so. Very similar kind of social circles uh, growing up in the same tradition. Um, of course, he's moved out to California. He's a very different world than I than I uh, than I um, um, habit, habitate. What's the word I'm looking for? Than I live in these days. But very similar backgrounds. And so I reached out to him on Twitter to say, "Hey, come on my show and have a conversation with me about about some of the very similar decisions that you were." you're working through, these very similar things that you bumped into in your deconversion that I also bumped into, things like uh, literal, uh, how to read the Bible literally, the literal creation story, um, 
the idea of, of, of how I'm saved and encountering problems in the Bible, inconsistencies, uh, these different kinds of things. I, you know, I found these, these things challenging too. And when I began looking into, into what the Catholic Church said, that for me was a, was a huge comfort. I found it made a lot of sense, right? The magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, that it traces back to the apostles, to Jesus, saying, you know, you, giving the apostles the authority to bind and loose, which those apostles have passed on to their successors, the bishops, right? That, for me, was a very informative and instructive thing, and that, that made sense of a world of evangelical Christianity that I, I couldn't I couldn't fathom. It, didn't, it wasn't coherent, right? And so, uh, Steingart encountered some of these very similar, very same problems. And for him, the solution was throw his hands up kind of and say, you know what, this doesn't make sense at all. I can't understand this. I can't be a Christian. Whereas my response to those very similar questions, and I've had a number of guests, not guests, sorry, a number of emails, correspondence of, of people in similar places to this too, right, who encounter these things that seem inconsistent in Christianity. But to, to realize that your slice of Christianity, and this is what John and I talked about in, in, in some part at least, your slice of Christianity is a very small perspective on what the, the larger world of Christianity looks like, right? And you being raised to, to believe the literal story of creation and that baptism is a symbol and the communion is just a symbol and that this and this and this— those beliefs that you have are actually a very small, small subset of what the majority of Christians believe, not only throughout all of time, in the history of Christianity, but also even globally today, right? Look at the number of Catholics globally, number of Christians globally who believe, Protestant and Catholic, in infant baptism, for example, right? Lots of mainline Protestant churches, I already mentioned in this episode, that same thing, right? A lot of mainline Protestant churches practice infant baptism. Uh, the Catholic Church as a whole practices this. And so, your small little church, your denomination, it might seem like a, lot, a large swath of American evangelical Christianity, Canadian evangelical Christianity, believes this about baptism, that it must be an adult, it must be kind of affirming that, it's only symbolic, Right? That's actually a small set of what the historic Christian church has believed. Right, All through Christian history, we see it in the early church. We see it even past and through the Reformation, still continuing. This idea of infant baptism. Some of these things, and this is what I said to Steingart, some of these things that you believe, or you believed growing up as a Christian, that challenged your faith, that seemed like they weren't coherent, that didn't make sense, that others believed differently, that you couldn't find in your Bible as, okay, this is exactly this, this can't be interpreted in a different way, it's very crystal clear. You hit against those problems, and you realize that there is another way. There is this Catholic Church that, in continuity with those very first Christians, with the authority of, of the magisterium, in continuity with, with tradition and history, still does things this way and has an answer for some of these very challenging Protestant questions, these Protestant dilemmas, as my friend Devin Rose uh, likes to say, wrote a book about, these Protestant problems that you encounter. There is, there is a historical, a coherent, uh, a, a very very concrete answer to a lot of these questions. And so I had John on the show to talk about you know, both of our journeys and compare them and say, hey, look, you got here, 
you went this way, I went this way, and here's why. And it was a really fantastic conversation. He's a really affable, kind, generous guy. We had all kinds of tech problems. He was uh, recording in his garage and his his, uh, his, um, his MacBook overheated because it was so hot there in California. Then his iPad overheated. Then his phone overheated. And it was like problem after problem after problem. The interview kept going. He called me back a number of times. And eventually, an hour and 40 minutes, this conversation uh, in total, really hashing it out, talking about really cordially, which of course is the goal of this podcast, the differences in our journeys and the solutions I found to the exact same problems he was having only in the Catholic Church. And what a great conversation uh, that was. Very popular because, of course, he shared it on his, his massive social media following, uh, like a million people following him, probably more actually on Instagram and Twitter. A very big following. And so he shared those and uh, and those clips were very, the the, inter- the episode was very well listened to and very well received. I got a number of fantastic feedback on on that episode from people who were like, hey, you know what, I was here too. And you've answered some questions that I had about how to get to a different place from, from where I am and, and presented me with different solutions to these problems. So that was a, a crazy interview because, I mean... Uh, I, I get nervous talking to somebody like Lawrence Feingold because he's a brilliant theologian and I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I want to give him the, right, the time and the space to, to say what he has to say and I try not to interrupt and jump in and, and, and cut him off. I just want to, I want to listen for you guys. I want to bring to you these fantastic thinkers. I was nervous in a whole new way talking to this rock star in his very glamorous looking garage and uh, I guess the tech problems were a bit more humanizing, I think, for the interview, but uh, but kind of a crazy experience talking to this to, to a, a rock star celebrity. Different kind of rock star than I normally talk to. I normally talk to, to theological rock stars, but this was a, a different uh, can of worms altogether. Heading into uh, the late summer, September, end of August uh, 2020, some some fabulous interviews that I was just, again, so fortunate, so blessed to be able to do. All of this <laughs> really is a dream, to be able to have these conversations and to be able to make this thing week after week. I'm, I'm very grateful and I'm, I'm constantly pinching myself as I go through this process because it's really remarkable the people I get to talk to and the interviews I get to bring to you guys. Episode 75 with uh, Carl E. Olson was just fantastic talking about the rapture. He has written a book about the rapture that somehow appeared on my Kobo. I don't even know how it happened. Like really, I, I don't know what went on to bring that a book to my Kobo? Some kind of act of God, just a sheer like direct act of God to put that book on my Kobo. I don't even know how it got there, but it got there and I thought, well, I guess I have to interview this guy because the book seems pretty interesting. And uh, it was a great interview talking about the roots of the idea of the rapture. Right? I called it What Do Catholics Believe About the Rapture, episode 75, from September 2nd, 2020, uh, my wife's birthday. <laughs> great episode on... The roots of, of where the idea of a rapture comes from and what, what, how do Catholics understand this? And really the conclusion, if you want to skip the episode just hear the Coles notes, is that no, Catholics don't believe the idea of, of a rapture where these, this hidden group of Christians are, are tucked away, are, are, are taken away uh, back to Jesus. And then the suffering takes place and all this stuff, the end, the end times. Popularized, of course, in the Left Behind book series, which I devoured as a new evangelical in high school. I loved those books. But a bunch of bunk. 
<laughs> says Carl. And actually quite anti-Catholic in a number of ways. A number of the 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 people behind the the movement that that came to popularize rapture kind of theology, which kind of took place the turn of the century and uh and and so forth. A lot of these people were were vehemently anti-Catholic. And really it was some of that thinking that drove a lot of their theology. And again, like these things I talked about a moment ago with 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 Don Steingard, a very uniquely kind of American uh, evangelical kind of tradition, right? Not widely believed, of course, not at all in the in the early church, in the history of the church until quite quite recently. And again, only believed by a very small subset of Christians. It might seem, again, like looking around as an evangelical, that everyone believes this. But no, no, no. Everyone in your circle believes this. But the majority of Christians, again, throughout all of time and currently, you know, don't pay any attention to this because it's not what they believe. It's, it's not, a, it's a modern, a novel kind of invention. It's very, very, um, very <laughs> new age Christian thinking, right? It's very new, recent development. So great episode 67, or sorry, 75 with Carl Olson on the rapture. I, I loved that one. Number of panels throughout the year with my friends Matt Swaim and Keith Nestor, good friends of the show. We had one on sola fide, the idea of saved by faith alone, and one on sola scriptura, the idea of Bible alone. Both of these almost two-hour panels, uh, look for those back in the archives if you're curious. Uh, very popular episodes, very well, very well enjoyed, lots of good feedback on those episodes, kind of digging in. From an evangelical perspective, we're all converts, all three of us. Keith, of course, was a pastor. Uh, Matt and I are just, you know, what, lay people? <laughs> lay evangelicals? <laughs> Can we say that? Uh, really unpacking how we came to understand these two, really, pillars of the Reformation and, and how we came to believe that, as evangelicals, those didn't hold their weight any longer course and became catholic so really fun conversations really fun panels we'll have more of those in the new year in 2021 with those two guys because they're they're a great a great conversation team i think the three of us have some good chemistry and and it's fun chatting with those guys about those 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 big questions right how do we understand our, our faith our salvation how do we understand what what how to use the bible and of course we all encountered these same kind of problems the three of us in in reading scripture in understanding our salvation and came to the catholic church episode 78 september 23rd 2020 was for me uh, a a turning point can i say uh, in in the the life of this podcast not least of all because i I, it's reframed my thinking in some particular ways um, because this guest had some really fascinating insights that really have kind of haunted me ever since in a very good way. Um, talking about Austin Suggs from the Gospel Simplicity YouTube channel, we had the chance to chat for almost two hours um, back in September. If you don't know Austin, uh, he is an evangelical, uh, a student at Moody Bible Institute, and he began looking into um, the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and in asking these questions, asking, trying to make sense of these things and find commonalities, find differences, understand what Catholics and Orthodox believe and how that kind of fits into, into his own paradigm. And uh, I encountered his YouTube video just based on the algorithm. I, mean, I, I, was, I just opened up YouTube one day and there he was. YouTube thought that I should watch his video, and so I did, and... 
it was all about going to Catholic Mass or going to a Catholic Bible study for the first time and his kind of encounter with Catholics who actually knew their faith and seemed to be on fire for their faith and, and how that really changed his perspective encountering Catholics like that. And I thought, this guy, I got to follow this guy. I got to get to know him more because, yes, he's on to something here. Catholics, you know, as an evangelical, once I found Catholics who really knew their faith and understood their faith, and once I began to read from Catholic theology and all these things I say on the show all the time, right, once I began to experience that, I realized what I thought I knew about Catholics was, was backwards, right? I say that on the show, every introduction, the, the same kind of thing, right? And it's true. And here was somebody else finding out these same kind of things. And so I thought, I gotta have this guy on the show where we can together kind of unpack these these questions about Catholicism. So I called it Evangelical Questions About Catholicism. He had about 700 subscribers on his YouTube channel when I first met him and, and interviewed him. And uh, as of today, the end of December 2020, for our year-end retrospective, he has around 14,000 subscribers. So his channel, his work on YouTube, his work uh, for evangelization, for the kingdom, for Christ... Has, has gone in just these enormously crazy new directions. Um, our friendship is is really a blessing to my life, uh, knowing Austin, getting to know him. We talk all the time now. We are planning some fantastic shows together for the new year. I'll tell you about at the end of this episode. And um, uh, such a fantastic friendship to, to meet this guy and to be able to kind of journey with him and answer his questions and ask him questions and, and, and challenge him and, and him challenge me. And really, um, he asked some really pointed things in in that in the interview that I had with him. And subsequently, as he interviews different people, he's interviewed different different priests and theologians and apologists from the Orthodox Church, from the Catholic Church, and he he has asked some really interesting questions, right? And for for him, one of the things that he said early on in our conversation that really has haunted me, has has stuck with me and stuck with him as well as he unpacks these things, he says the same thing is the idea that the claim of the Catholic Church really comes down to authority. And this is so true. I think any convert will tell you the same thing. Uh, And of course, he's not a convert. Not a convert. He still, he remains evangelical. But this is what what many converts will tell you. Eventually, got them to cross the Tiber is you encounter this 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 claim to authority that okay, if the Catholic Church is what it says that it is, if it really is the Church Christ founded with apostolic succession, with the Pope as its head, with all these different things, if the Catholic Church really is that, then we just believe it. Everything else kind of falls into place. That authority claim is the main thing. If we can get past that, accept that, and the Marian doctrines, the Eucharist, baptisms, transubstantiation, the rosary, the scapulars, the relics, the prayers of the saints, prayers for the dead, all these things, these weird things that Catholics do that seem so foreign to an evangelical, seem so foreign to me as an evangelical, if we can get to the authority claim, and if that is true, and everything else kind of falls into place. This is what, what, what Dr. Bergman said about back in episode 67, right? If we can get to realizing that the church, as the early church shows us, was, the, was where the bishop was, was where the Eucharist was. And if that thing still is the same today, right? If that wasn't overcome, as Christ tells us, it won't be. He tells that to the apostles, that the gates of Hades won't overcome the church he is founding on on Peter in that instance, right? If that authority claim is true, 
Everything else is almost secondary, right? It, 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 you believe it by proxy because if you accept that claim, you can easily accept everything else. And, you know, this is, this is I think, well-timed because I'm going to play for you a clip in a moment, episode 79, the very next episode, which was with Mark Galley, the uh, former editor of Christianity Today. And, and I actually... <laughs> And this is one of those things I'm talking about that haunts me and, and kind of changed my paradigm in meeting Austin. I often quote Austin now in my, my podcast because that that idea of the authority claim is is very profound, right? You get one, you get one per lifetime, right? Here's Austin. Here's your profound insight, Austin. And this is it. I think this is don't don't count on many more. I don't think. Um, no, I'm kidding. But really, a profound insight on the authority claim, and so I often refer to that in in, in previous episodes, in or in subsequent episodes. And surely enough, sure enough, right away, the next episode I, I did with Mark Galley, episode seventy nine, I refer to this idea of this kind of um, this claim of authority, and how how once you submit to that, once you accept that, everything else kind of falls into place, and and. Mark brings up his idea of yeah the, this different paradigms how how Protestants come to understand different you know choose a church understand doctrine understand their beliefs versus how we as Catholics accepting that authority claim how we much differently kind of come to our beliefs and this is the thing that I've tried to articulate for a long long time on this show I think I think back to when I had Abigail Favalli on this show way back when in the first year of the show, 2019, and we talked about the same thing. She is, a, she is of course, um, um, a convert. She's very intelligent. We talked about, I think, gender and sexuality issues on the show way back when. And she said something that, that has, again, stuck with me, and I've heard subsequent converts like like Mark Galley, say the same kind of thing, right? That you can almost relax into Catholic theology. Once you accept that authority claim, you no longer have to pick and choose how you understand different aspects of life and theology and faith, right? As as Protestants, we kind of have to look at our Bibles and wrestle with Scripture and, and read good theologians and read good opinions and good commentaries, kind of come to understand how how we understand something, right? If you're really a, a, a devout kind of Protestant, this is how you determine things, right? Determine what church has the corner on, on, on what they believe. But it, it comes down to you being the arbiter of that thing, right? I'm reading my Bible to figure out what I think is the best church that fits my interpretation of the Bible. And no matter how hard we try not to do that, we're still doing that because you're still reading your Bible to figure out what church believes what you think is most biblical, right? It's this kind of vicious cycle we encounter. And so realizing that there is an authority structure or authority outside of the Bible, an arbiter of the Bible, if you will, in the Catholic Church, is a huge paradigm shift. And as Austin says, if you can come to that place, of course, Mr. Suggs has not come there yet. I mean, who knows? Uh, Once you come to that place, well then, those other things fall into place. It's not this shopping around for a church that fits your doctrines. It's finding this church, finding the pearl of great price, as so many converts you know, use that parable of Christ to, to explain the Catholic Church. You find that pearl of great price, then you sell your things and buy that field. 
You don't figure out what field to buy and, and shop around for the right field that, that might have that thing in there, right? It, it's it's a completely different paradigm. And so here's Mark kind of unpacking that. And I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about Mark afterwards, but here's the clip I'm thinking of here. And maybe you should just abandon, uh, and I did. I mean, I, I didn't just do it. It sort of happened naturally. Abandon my essential uh, epistemology as a Protestant. See, the essential epistemology of a Protestant is... Before you join something, you kind of take a measure in your own mind about what you believe. Then you look at the beliefs of this church or group you're going to become a part of. And if they agree kind of 90%, you kind of step in and you agree to do it. It's very much about aligning what's going on in my head with what's on paper over here. And that's how a lot of Protestants approach Catholicism. They say, I'd become Catholic except for transubstantiation. I'd become Catholic except for immaculate conception. Well, that, as soon as I made a kind of this gestalt shift, I realized that's, that's really not, you, you, you can't become a Catholic and mark off a bunch of check boxes about what you agree or don't agree with. That's to approach Catholicism and with a Protestant epistemology about what's, what's true, good, and beautiful is this checklist of theological doctrines. And it occurred to me that when to become a Catholic means, it doesn't mean you throw out your mind, but it does mean you give your mind to something bigger than yourself. It's not about your individual beliefs of what's going on in your head, but it's about taking your heart, mind, and soul and saying to the church, shape me, teach me. I want to be a disciple. Uh, and when I run across, you know, as a Protestant, some of the doctrines you run across are going, what is that about? <laughs> Immaculate conception. Where's that in the Bible? Come on. <laughs> but the point is not to say, I now have to believe this. Otherwise I'm not a good Catholic. It's more. Well, Catholics have believed this for some time. And some of the richest and most thoughtful theologians think it's, it's a tremendous doctrine and it's biblical. Well, why do they think that? I should learn. I should learn about that. I should try to appreciate that. Even if I find it because I've been a Protestant for 50 years, I find it a little foreign. I'm still going to go. But that's what the church teaches. And I want to learn what the church teaches and why it teaches it. Great interview with Mark Galley. Let me tell you a bit more about Mark Galley because this is a fantastic story. So this guy was the the editor of uh, uh, a number of roles at Christianity Today. If you are a, a, a Catholic and don't know Christianity Today, don't know the evangelical world very well, Christianity Today is is the flagship kind of publication of the evangelical world. It's this big kind of newspaper and website, uh, very, very much on the cutting edge of evangelical Christianity, the go-to kind of place to understand the pulse of evangelicalism in uh, North America. And uh, Mark Galley was the editor, then the editor-in-chief, and very, very recently stepped down in that role, as it turns out, to become Catholic. And just an amazing story he tells. We we talked for, let's see here, we talked for an hour and a half Uh very popular episode, again, of, of the podcast, uh, Helped in part by uh, Dr. Scott Hahn sharing it on his his Facebook feed, which um, I think James Merrick, uh, I think it was James Merrick, calls this the Hahn bump. <laughs> when Dr. Hahn shares something of yours and uh, you receive a giant spike in traffic. Um, I posted that interview on my Facebook. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn saw it and reposted it on his Facebook 
uh, following, and of course, everyone uh, piled on and and saw it and listened to it, and very well received. But here's a guy like right. These these are the, these are these once in a while stories of a very high profile uh, Christian, high profile evangelical Christian, uh, coming to terms with th- their faith not 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 making sense, not connecting for them, and and looking to dig deeper into something, and then finding the Catholic Church, and in a very very public way. I mean, I think of people like Francis Beckwith, um, someone like Scott Hahn n- now has gone on to to. It'll be very successful as a Catholic, <laughs> to say the least. Has an enormously popular uh, and impactful conversion story. But these different people who have these radical conversions, right? Very publical, publical. <laughs> Not a word. These very public conversion stories uh, from prominent positions, right? Who become Catholic. And Mark's story is is very fascinating, right? Ultimately, humbling himself, surrendering himself to, as he says, something bigger here. This is the thing, right? Accepting the claims of the Catholic Church, realizing that as a Protestant, he couldn't work out his own understanding of Scripture. There, there were too many competing interpretations. There were too many competing groups. And ultimately, he realized he has to look outside of himself to something else. And here he finds the ancient Catholic Church rooted in the early church right through to Christian history and decided to become Catholic. So quietly kind of steps down from his post at Christianity Today to the time he says felt right and became Catholic. And I was so fortunate enough to to be one of the, I think, the first person to kind of break an interview with him. Um, I emailed him up. He was more than happy to be in the show. We chatted for an hour and a half. Great interview, episode 79 of the podcast um, back in September 30th, 2020. Uh, I, I was so privileged to be able to kind of break that that story to the, to the Catholic world. So, um, great interview. One of my favorites, really, of, of all time, I think, uh, looking back, not only of 2020, but uh, since the podcast has, has been going, really. There are a few highlights. I mean, Paul McCusker is one of those huge highlights for me. Mark Galley here is definitely another one for me, right? Just this, such a humble guy, such a humble story, and really just somebody who's seeking the truth and from a very high position, really humbles himself to to become Catholic. And so it's just a, a great interview, really fun interview uh, to, to, to have done. One of those times when I feel really blessed and grateful to be doing this this job, right? I, I feel very spoiled, very fortunate to be behind this microphone talking to great guests like Mark Galley. As we head towards the end of this 2020 year in review retrospective, I have a, num- a couple more clips to play from you and a number of fantastic interviews that really wrapped up the end of this year. Uh, episode 83 with uh, Joe Heschmeyer, what we need to know about the Pope, was one of those real highlights for me. I am planning to have Joe back on the show. I'll tell you a bit about that at the end of the program here, end of the episode here. But um, this episode was all about the Pope. Joe has a great book called Pope Peter, out from Catholic Answers Press, and uh, we had a great chat about about what is the Pope, what does he do, who is he, where are the roots of the papacy in Scripture, how do we know that this is a real a real thing historically, all kinds of angles in this great kind of hour and a half episode, all about the Pope. Joe is a great guy, so cordial, so affable, so kind, and really a great conversation with him. And here's what he said when I asked him, kind of, you know, what is 
what is the Pope? Things When we talk about the Pope and don't understand exactly what it is, we're talking about different things here. And let's lay a bit more groundwork here. What is the Pope then? Yeah, so the, the Pope has a few critical, I would say, central roles. And the first is to serve as an what the, some of the Eastern Church Fathers called an icon of unity for the Church. It's a visible sign of being in union with the body of Christ. That if you're in union with the Pope, then you know you're in union with the church founded by Christ. That's a pretty awesome kind of role. And there's no other bishop who can say that because any other bishop could go into schism. So you might be in, in communion with your particular bishop, but your, your bishop is a schismatic or is an excommunicator or, or fill in the blanks. And in the history of the church, we see this plenty of times, most obviously in the case now with Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, that would be the first thing. The Pope is an icon of unity since we are called by Christ to both persevere in orthodoxy and to all be united as he and the father are united. This is John 17. Uh, the only way to do that is to have unity in the truth. And this is one of the things I actually talk about in the book, Pope Peter, that there, from the Protestant perspective, you always have to choose between unity and truth. I quote a Methodist scholar, Ben Witherington, who talks about this. He says, from the Protestant perspective, Catholics choose unity at the sake of truth, and Protestants choose truth at the sake, for the sake, at the sake of unity. Well, the first thing to notice here is Christ commands both. So if you're trying to have truth and giving up unity, you're trying to have truth by giving up truth. Because part of the truth of the gospel is that all Christians are called to be one, as Christ and the Father are one. It's very explicit. John 17, verse 20 to 23, is the only time we see Jesus explicitly praying for future generations of Christians. And what he's praying for is that we won't divide. And so if Protestants are just ignoring that and openly dividing and treating it like it doesn't matter, they are openly violating the one thing he specifically told them not to do and us not to do, right? So you can't give up unity for the sake of truth, but neither can you give up truth for the sake of unity. So you need to have, logically, some way of being united in the truth. The Pope, as the icon of unity, is that way. Whatever the Pope is teaching, by definition, cannot be heretical, in, the sense, in, in this very limited sense. If the Pope says you have to believe X to be part of the church— and X is heretical, then you as a believer are forced into choosing heresy or schism. And then you've been forced into an impossible choice since Christ has forbidden both avenues. Great interview. Joe Heschmeyer, episode 83, what you need to know about the Pope. Uh, fantastic, you know, great detail. He goes there. I mean, he begins with a, with a logical, a logical case for the papacy and then goes into the scriptural evidence, and really Joe brings out some things that you rarely hear elsewhere in defending the papacy. And again, I'll reference my good friend Austin Suggs, has told me that that really Joe's book was maybe the, the best challenge that he's encountered so far. Is it fair to say that? I don't know. Hopefully, uh, I'm not speaking out of turn, Austin. But one of the most serious challenges that he's really encountered when thinking with the papacy comes from some of the things that Joe brings up, because there really are profound things that Joe discusses in explaining why the Pope is important and really the biblical roots of, of the papacy. Uh, great episodes um, heading into uh, October and November of this year. I'm thinking of one more clip I want to play for you. is episode 86, my second interview with Gary Machuda. Had him on again 20 or so weeks after the first one. And uh, 
I titled this episode, this, this was the first episode that I really approached with a thesis kind of in mind. It was a bit of an experiment, and Gary was happy to, to indulge me in my experimentation. And we call this episode 86, The Problem with the Protestant Bible. And my thesis really was this, that if the Bible, so Gary, Gary tells us back in episode 67 that the Bible is, is incomplete as Protestants have it. That originally there were these deuterocanonical books, the, the evangelicals, Protestants would call them the Apocrypha. These were removed from the canon of the Bible that, that really should have been left in, that was intact for a variety of reasons, right? These things happened, and we go in-depth in that in episode 67. We talk about it briefly in 86, why these books were removed. But really, looking at a historical perspective, they were removed for whatever variety of reasons um, you want to kind of muster, but they were removed. And so, as Gary argues, those belong in the Bible. And okay, if that is true, then what is the problem that Protestants face if those aren't in the Bible? What happens at that point? Because my thesis was this, that there are some serious problems. If, you're, if your faith as a Protestant is based on the Bible alone, and your Bible is missing books that were in there for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, that Christ and the apostles refer to, and, and directly and indirectly kind of reference and quote from uh, and, and, and make use of, right? If those books belong in the Bible and you as a Protestant don't have them in your Bible anymore, isn't that a huge problem? And what I came to realize is that is or, or, or decided is, yes, that is a problem. And so I emailed Gary and said, hey, what do you think of this thesis? He said, yeah, you're right. From his study of the Bible, you know, his perspective as a, as a biblical apologist, as a Catholic, he said, yeah, I agree with you. And I said, okay, come on the show and tell listeners why it's a problem and what the ramifications of that problem is. And he was happy to indulge me. So we had a great conversation uh, all about this problem, the problem that Protestants face with a Bible that's really not the Bible that that the the church intended them, that Christ intended them to have. So great conversation, and and here's what Gary said near the end of the episode when I asked him. I said, "Hey Gary, like lay your cards on the table. Give me like kind of the Coles notes, the final summation of of why you think Protestants have a problem. Tell me what that is." And here's his answer. I wonder then, as we wrap up, Gary, if the Protestant listener who's heard all of this, you know, they've heard why these books kind of belong in the canon, why, what important information they contain. And let's be honest, it's God's word. So if they're, if they're missing, you know, <laughs> they should be in there anyway, maybe. I wonder if you can make the case though, maybe it's already been made here um, and, and you've convinced everyone listening and maybe they have no doubts that in their mind at all about why they should be reading these in, in, their, in their Bible. But can you make the case for us one last time, you know, why the Protestant Bible, especially if it's the sole rule of faith for the Protestant, why is it just too darn small? And and what's the huge problem with those books being not part of the Protestant Bible? Yeah, um, well, it, basically everything we've said so far. <laughs> I mean, uh, the problem is, first, they're missing the Word of God. The whole counsel of God is missing. You know, there are uh, parts missing, in fact, very important parts. Uh, they're missing four centuries of continuing revelation that God gave to the Jews. Very important revelation that develops the ideas that ultimately is brought to light in the New Testament. So if you don't have these books, it's almost like Trinitarian doctrine just seems to pop out of nowhere. 
where if you see the development that occurred in Judaism beforehand, you can see, yeah, this is part of the continuity. God has prepared his people. Um, you know, you have all these weird discontinuities of Hebrew scriptures suddenly become God inspires Greek. Uh, you know, just uh, and uh, the analogy I used last program, I uh, use it again here is if you view the the Bible as the Supreme Court that judges all doctrine, it's the ultimate appeal for doctrine. If you're missing judges on the court or have wrong judges, that can affect the decision. You know, now we're we're coming up with a confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice. Well, you know, without certain judges on the bench, uh, the the court will rule a certain way. And the same thing's true with Scripture. If you don't have all the judges, all the proper components of Scripture there, and you're a solo scripturist, a Bible alone Christian, then you have a problem because your Bible is not going to give you the full counsel of God as God intended it. <laughs> Great conversation with Gary Machuda. Great challenge there, right? Great kind of summation. If your Bible doesn't have all the books that God intended it to have, and we kind of unpack in the episode why why Gary thinks that that is the case, that the Bible is missing those books as, a, as the Protestant version of the Bible. If you're missing those judges on the bench, well, then you're missing some really important uh, aspects of, of Scripture, of the Word of God. If that's what you base your faith on, you're missing important parts. And so, really gives some pause for the, I think, uh, and, and I heard this via email and on Twitter and Facebook and some of the feedback to the episode, really gives some serious pause to listeners who, who subscribe to that, that kind of theology and maybe missing parts of their Bible as a result. Uh, as the year wrapped up in December, I had a number of fantastic interviews. Again, some of my favorites. Episode 88 with William Albrecht and Father Christian Capus on the biblical and historical Mary. Great conversation. I'm going to have both those guys back on the show. They have a new book coming out in 2021 on the Eucharist, and we'll talk about that um, with, with them when that comes out. Guys who are steeped in in the Bible, steeped in the ancient languages of the Bible, steeped in the early church fathers, and kind of can combine those things and unpack those things together to show here's how Mary is viewed in the Bible. Here, here's kind of the typological connections. Here's the connections, the kind of prophetic connections in the Old Testament linking to the New Testament. And here's how the early church kind of un- interpreted these things. These two guys, fantastic scholars, united in this pursuit. Uh, doing some really amazing work for the church. I mean, just fantastic stuff. You've got to listen to that episode 88 uh, uh, from December 2nd. Episode 89, uh, a good friend of the show. Uh, I absolutely love Rod Bennett. I managed to entice him back. He was, again, one of my very first episode, uh, very first guests on this show, talking about, I think it was The the Apostasy, his book, The Apostasy That Wasn't, was a very popular book from, I think, his Catholic Answers Press, uh, addressing the idea of, was, was there this ancient, kind of spotless Christian church that the Romans then came and corrupted under Constantine, and, and made an institution, and ritualized, and, you know, the vestments came in place, and the ritual sacrifices came in place, uh, uh, the mass, I should say, all these things. Was there this ancient spotless church, or is the Catholic Church a continuity of how the church first worshipped? And of course, Rob sa- Rod says, no, there is no apostasy, here's why. And so, we had that conversation way back at the very, very beginning of the podcast in, in 2019, um, 
And uh, yeah, I can't even think of episode that would have been. It, it's just absolutely ancient. Episode number, let me see here, episode number seven, May 15th, 2019, uh, 007, which is a hilarious numbering scheme I, I used back then. 007 with, with Rod Bennett on the apostasy that wasn't. Um, had him back again to talk about the Bible, the Septuagint, um, a topic that Gary and I also unpacked recently. And then had him here back, episode 89, talking about the early church. And the reason why I bring this up, I don't have a clip to play for you because it's very recent. And if you if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Please, episode 89 from December 9th with Rod Bennett. It's a fantastic episode. Great conversation. And and why I bring it up is because what, what Rod closed with has really hung on in my mind since then and just kind of percolated and, and circulated. And I'm going to bring it up again in a number of episodes I'm recording on the early church coming up in 2021. He said something to the effect of, of and I'll paraphrase here, if you as an evangelical can't find an early church father that would be accepted as a pastor in your church, what does that say about your church? And I think that's a fantastic challenge, a very unique challenge that kind of pits the early church fathers, these these writers who came just after the apostles, and give us glimpses into how the very early Christians acted and worshipped and what they believed. If one of those guys wouldn't be accepted as a pastor in your church, well then something is wrong with, with, with your church, <laughs> is the implication, right? Because your church doesn't look like the early church. And what Rod said, I think, is so insightful, right? You can, you can pick and choose, you can pick and choose quotes from the early church that seem to sound like what your church looks like, right? Small groups, meeting in upper rooms, right? Worshiping with music and, and together, and and sharing things in common. These things that the early church did, but you get to things like talk of bishops and the Eucharist, and, and the idea of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that Jesus, Jesus is really present in there, not just symbolically, not a symbol, but as Christ says in John 6, this becomes his flesh, his, his blood, becomes his body. We find these things in the early church, Rod says, and they're disturbing because as an evangelical, if those things don't fit your theology, well, then you have to say, well, what's going on with my theology, Right? I think it's a fantastic challenge and a great episode with Rod Bennett. He's just such a fabulous guy to listen to. Really enjoy just, you know, pulling up a chair, you know, around the fire and and listening to Rod on with his kind of homespun Southern American wisdom, right? It's from the deep south. It's just a fantastic conversation, a great guy. I have lots of love for Rod and uh, a good friend of the show, and I appreciate the work he's doing and, and these kinds of conversations. Episode 90, 90 from December 16th, maybe my favorite conversation ever on this show. I hate to, I hate to, to rank guests and, and to play favorites, but talk to Father Joshua Caswell, the Superior General of the um, of the uh, the canons regular of St. John Cantius um, and the pastor of St. John Cantius par- uh, Parish in, in Chicago. What a guy. I mean, this was, again, here's the, the Austin connection. I'll give <laughs> shout-outs where shout-outs are due. Uh, Austin Suggs from Gospel Simplicity introduced me to Josh, Father Joshua. So, funny enough, an evangelical introducing me, a former evangelical, to a Catholic priest 
who himself is an evangelical convert. We had a great conversation uh, unpacking Father Joshua's story. He was a Pentecostal Christian raised up here in Canada. His parents were missionaries who moved up to northern Canada to start a Bible camp and were in turn evangelized by the indigenous people who lived there who were Catholic, who were evangelized by some of the early Catholic missionaries that came to North America. Uh, And him and his family became Catholic based on the interaction with these indigenous people up there. And it was an amazing, amazing story. He is so charismatic, such a fantastic storyteller, has has just a way of speaking that really just draws you in. I just listened. I, I just listened for almost an hour straight to him talking as he unpacked his story. And it's a phenomenal conversion story. Maybe, as I said, one of my favorite conversations on this show because it was just so dynamic and so interesting and such a great witness, I hope, to evangelical Christians who are listening, who hear him speak so passionately, so charismatically about the Catholic faith. I mean, I wish I had even half of the evangelical rigor and vigor that that Father Joshua has. And I I know that the church is well served in the future with somebody like Father Joshua leading an order of, of priests down there in Chicago because... He is such a fantastic guy. God is just working through him. And and I'm not going to play a clip here because it's very, it's very recent. You can come find it, uh, episode 90, just a few episodes ago. Not very far down there in the list of, of recent episodes. So go have a listen, have a look, check that out. But one thing he says is he, he talks about the idea that we as evangelicals, as, as charismatic evangelicals, which I was as well in, in large measure, just like Father Joshua, we, we sing songs about longing for Jesus' presence and longing to be in the presence of God and to have more of Christ. These songs we sing are more of Jesus, more of Jesus. These are the kind of the, the things we had sung about as evangelicals. And here, you know, Father Joshua found this. I found this. We converts find this, that Christ is present in the Catholic Church in a very real way, in, the, in and through the priest to offer forgiveness right? In and through the priest to, uh, to give baptism and confirmation. In the, the Eucharist, in a very real way, right? Body, soul, blood, divinity. Christ is there present in the Eucharist. I can go kneel down in a Catholic church in front of the Eucharist, right? We call this adoration, and we unpack this in episode 90 with, with Father Joshua. I can go and kneel there and know that I'm in the presence of Christ, that Christ is in the room, right, with me. I can consume Christ as he told us to in John 6, as the early church wrote about and believed. And wow, right, wow. And we're talking as, as, as Pentecostals, as Protestant Christians, about wanting more of Jesus's presence. Well, here it is right here, right, in the Catholic church. And how incredible <laughs> is that? Guys, 2020 was just an amazing year. I want to just, before we end this episode, give you a little preview of what's to come in 2021. But thank you for listening. Thank my patrons for their support at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to keep this thing going quite literally. I would be nowhere without you. I, I, I just couldn't do this thing. And as I sit here in the new kind of nook we've turned into... <laughs> This 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 recording studio, it was a closet. I we put a little desk in here. As I look around here, I am very grateful for those who help support this show. 
and, and keep this thing going. So thank you guys. If you're listening and haven't rated and reviewed this show yet, please go ahead and do that because those ratings, those reviews help to push the podcast out to new people. They'll see it in their podcast player and iTunes and Apple Podcasts, uh, on Stitcher, wherever they find it. They'll, they'll see those reviews and seeing a number of five-star reviews will help people to say, hey, must be a good podcast. I'll, I'll check it out. And please do tell your friends too. Tell your family. Word of mouth is how podcasts spread these days, right? I don't say these things to to to, to puff myself up, to, to enlarge my ego. It's it's already big enough. I need to work to 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 decrease myself, right? So the Lord may increase. That's my daily goal, my my daily prayer. And it's it's well, it's not working, but I'm trying. I'm trying, please pray for me. But I don't say these things to puff myself up, right? I say these things because the, the mission of this podcast is, is to bring the evangelical message of the Catholic Church to, to people, to everyone, right? To help you learn your faith, to help non-Catholic Christians to be exposed to real Catholic thought and real Catholic thinkers. And so those ratings and reviews, that, that word of mouth, telling a friend, telling people to listen to this podcast, that's what helps to grow the mission of this whole podcast, the whole point of this thing. All right, looking ahead to 2021, uh, I've mentioned it a few times. I am I'm co-collaborating with my good friend Austin Suggs. We have a document in the works on Google Docs. We're texting back and forth furiously. We're having on the show Joe Heschmeyer and Dr. Gavin Ortland on the show to talk about being deep in history, right? We converts know the quote from Henry, from St. John Henry Newman, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Very famous quote that's often bandied about. I've written articles on this, of course, lots of articles out there from other people who convert because they read Christian history and feel feel like the Catholic Church is is the has the market cornered on the historical church, right? The Catholic Church is the church from the early church in continuity, right? So we become Catholic. Well, Dr. Orlin is a Baptist pastor with a PhD in in, in church history uh, from Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, he says no. You don't have to be. And he's written about this. He makes YouTube videos about this. He addresses this. He is a fabulously cordial guy, a great fit for this show. And so Austin and I have hatched this idea up of having him on a panel with Joe Heschmeyer, of course, author of Pope Peter, great cordial guy in his own right. These two very kind, generous, compassionate, well-spoken, articulate guys Myself and Austin as co-hosts having a discussion about being deep in history. It's going to be a, a fantastic episode coming out on, I, I think at this point we're looking at the middle of January 2021. So keep your eyes peeled for that. It's going to be a, a, just a great conversation. Very excited to have that in the new year. That's really the big highlight. I have a number of other shows, other interviews coming out that I could spoil, not spoil, that I could tease for you and tell you all about. But this is the one that I, that I think is going to be a real headliner going into 2021 uh, to look forward to. So put that on your calendar. Make sure you have so are subscribed to this podcast because it's going to be coming out. Also on, on uh, Austin's uh, Gospel Simplicity YouTube channel, you can watch the whole thing as well. Once it comes out, keep your eyes peeled. 
Guys, I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully, having a bit of back uh, b- background insight into some of these guests and these interviews and, and hearing kind of these clips, this, uh, my, some of my favorite interviews of the year was, hopefully this, this was interesting for you and, and you enjoyed it. And thanks anyway for, for listening, guys. I want to say again, all your feedback is welcome at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, so please do reach out. Um, happy New Year as it's coming up very quickly. Um, pray for me in the new year. Pray for me always. I'm, I'm praying for you. I hope that 2021 is a fantastic year for you. Hopefully doing this again in 2021 at the end of that year, we'll look back on some fantastic interviews and some great guests. I can only hope and hey one more thing as i begin to play the uh, the music here to cue the end of the show i want to say this we're looking at episode 100 uh not too far away next week we release episode 91 so you do the math it's not too far away episode 100 and i am collecting some um some some feedback from you guys um, speakpipe, speakpipe.com slash cordial Catholic. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. But speakpipe.cordialcatholic.com slash cordial Catholic. You can send me a five minute clip talking about why you love being Catholic. Why do you love being Catholic? I want to collect those responses, those audio responses. You can, you can phone in, you can use your, your tablet, your computer, your phone. To go to the website, record a short message, and I'll play those messages on our 100th uh, episode. I plan to have a little clips show of all different kinds of people, different walks of life, different theologians, apologists I've had on this show are sending in their feedback, their thoughts. I'm going to play those clips and hopefully a great big smorgasbord, a great big kind of tapestry of all these different people on why they love being Catholic. It'll be a great episode to celebrate One. 100 episodes. That's incredible, guys. Thinking uh, thinking back on, on, on this year and this this journey, to get to, you know, year two of the podcast, to have 2020 under, under our belts is an amazing feat. To get to episode 100 is just, wow, remarkable. And, and I thank God for that. And thank you for listening, guys. You guys make this whole thing possible. Um, pray for me. I am praying for you. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. That's still going on too, guys. And please pray for me and and, and God bless. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.